Welcome to the On the Edge podcast with your host, Scott Groves. So UConn Sarah, this is how I know you're a drummer and a rock and roller because when I had the guy come up with the promo music, he's like, who's your favorite bands? I'm like, Pearl Jam, U2, and Guns N' Roses. And before we started, you said, hey, Scott, your intro music sounds a little Guns N' Roses. It's a little like Welcome to the Jungle-ish. So thank you for already adding value to my yeah. life. So we are here with UConn Sarah. You're welcome. I'm here. I appreciate you. We're here with UConn Sarah, and uh, UConn Sarah actually lives in the Yukon, so we might have some internet spottiness and uh, and a little bit of intermittency and delay on this podcast, so just live with it. Because, Sarah, how cold was it up there in the Yukon yesterday? Yesterday, or or it was the day before. I don't know. They're, all the days are kind of blending into each other. It was minus 42 below. And if you're asking, is that Celsius and Fahrenheit? That's about the same. So minus 40 Celsius and Fahrenheit are exactly the same. And once it gets past minus 30, it's just cold. It's just really freaking oh, cold. Oh, so, so you're good at so minus 20, today, but under minus 30, it's a problem? Yeah, minus 20, we go skiing. And today, so everybody here has automatic starters on their cars, their vehicles. So throughout the day when I'm in the office, about every four or five hours, people just put their hands up with their automatic starters and start their car out the window and let it run for about five, 10 minutes and then turn it off again. So at the end of the day, the car will start. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So like the fact yeah, that cool. inter- the fact that internet or plumbing or cars, anything modern society, the fact that that even works at negative 40 degrees blows my mind. Like, are you just living your life, going right. to work, like running real estate deals and stuff at yeah. negative 40 degrees? It just kind of, kind of having or living our best life, really, to be honest, like it's cold, like, don't get me wrong. It is very, very cold, but everything's heated. So it's really only cold when you're outside (laughs) and you avoid going outside a lot when it's minus 30, but they actually, so my kids, you know, I was living in Los Angeles for the last 20 years and with COVID, my husband and I decided we just had to get our kids into a more normal, mentally stable, healthy environment for them because they were really suffering. So we had the opportunity, which is amazing. I'm from the Yukon. I still have family here. We owned a house here. So we were able, and we didn't know how long it would be for, um, but I just knew I had to get the kids out of everything that was going on. So we came here at the end of the summer and I've been working here. Thankfully, I'm licensed in both Canada and the States, which is really cool. And they are, they're loving it. We're loving it. We go skiing every weekend. So anytime it's below minus 20, we don't go any colder than that. But if it's warmer, we go skiing every weekend. And the ski hill is a, I think it's an eight minute drive from our house. So we go skiing and it's a great hill. So, you know, your boys are, 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 you know, preteens born and raised in Southern California. You and your husband had lived in Southern California for 20 years in Southern California. When it hits 65, you know, that's brisk and we're putting on a sweatshirt. How in God's green earth, how do you go from like, ah, 75 and sunny year round to negative 30? It's a hundred degree change in temperature. How are you functioning? Yeah. It's surprisingly I feel okay and I was worried about the kids I mean I grew up here so I'm used to it there's lots of stuff to do we can go for a four minute drive and go icy we go skating there's a lot of indoor activities we take the kids swimming every Friday night every you know one or two Fridays we'll go we go swimming we go in the hot tub and we get bundled up and we run from the swimming center to the car 
Like we run, 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 run. Cause, and your hair will freeze by the time you leave the center to by the time you get in your car, cause your hair is still wet. It'll be frozen like icicles in your hair. So I'm doing okay. I was worried about my husband and my kids. Um, but again, I think we just had such a crazy 2020. And so, I mean, there's so many things happen and it was really, I feel like traumatic for everybody for so many reasons that just getting out of the stress and the heaviness, I think, you know, it became a lot easier here. And it's weird because right now we have zero COVID cases in the Yukon. We haven't had a case in over a month. Most of the cases we do get are from travel. So when you come into the Yukon, you have to quarantine for two weeks. And if you show any symptoms, they immediately test you and then they contact trace anyone that you could have been on the flight with, any family that you could have come, but you're really supposed to isolate for two weeks. So most of the cases we've had have been when people have already been isolating. So the spread has been easy, but it's easier to control because right now the highways are open to Alaska. We're, we're right on the border of Alaska. So we do have truckers and things coming through. When it's this cold, there's not a lot of road traffic, obviously, because it's quite dangerous. If you broke down in the middle of nowhere and had no heat in your vehicle, you know, you could, I mean, you literally can die. Um, yeah, yeah. So we I... don't get a lot of traffic. And then we have flights coming in, but again, people isolate. So it's a different universe here. So a lot of people. Is there only like 13 we people? We have a mask mandate. Is there only like 13 people in the there's Yukon? Thir- what, <laughs> like what's the, what, what's the population? <laughs> easy about- to control when there's 20 people. So it's crazy. The city I live in is about 35,000 and there's about 45,000 in the entire Yukon. But what's crazy is that's increased 10,000 people in the last five years. So our population is going crazy. And um, real estate here is shockingly competitive. There's very low inventory. Tons of people want to move here. And I think with COVID for obvious reasons, the kids are in full school. Right now, there's no COVID cases. We have a third of our adult population here has been vaccinated. Uh, we should be vaccinated pretty soon. So it's a normal life. And they did put a mask mandate in because they were there were some cases coming in probably through the highways from Alaska. So, or even from, from down south in Canada, driving to Alaska, but usually the traffic is going the other way. So there were some cases and they were worried about community spread. So there is a mask mandate. So if you go into the stores here, you have to wear a mask. Um, and they do have pretty strict rules with, you know, they have lineups. There's uh, people socially distance at the schools. There's only a very limited numbers of kids in each classroom, a um, lot of sanitation, a lot of hand washing. And a lot of things, the kids are outside. So it can be 15 below and they'll light a fire outside the school and they roast marshmallows with the kids and they learn about the things in the woods. And it's a very different type of education here, which is amazing. And I grew up that way. So I'm really stoked. My kids are experiencing it right now. That's awesome. You, you're reminding me of this book that I read a long time ago. You and I have had some some epic political battles on um, on uh, Facebook. You you tend to lean a little <laughs> yeah. bit more left. I tend to yeah. lean a little bit more right. Yeah. But a, a book that I read that really challenged kind of what I thought I believe with this book called Small is Beautiful. And it was it's kind of an economics book, but it really talked about corporations, government, any system that gets so big, they end up getting unwieldy and corrupt and you can't you know, you can't influence or control things and it's just a shit show. And so what you're describing to me really makes me 
realize how beautiful it is to live in a small town where people are probably on whole more socially responsible. They care more about their neighbor. It's easier to come together as a community and fight things like COVID where if you're in LA and there's 13 million people who don't give a shit about each other, like good luck, you know, it just is what it is. Well, that's, I would, that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Is it, so a lot of the things I feel like I was saying, oh, Americans, this Americans, that they, was it, is it because it's a big city, big city Americans, or is it the American culture? And that's something I've been thinking a lot about because there are a lot stark differences between Canada and the States. And you and I definitely battle about politics, but I come from a different perspective because I'm Canadian. So I'm not born, raised American. So socially, I lean, I tend to lean to anything that provides more empathy and to me, social justice, as opposed to, I I am surprisingly, I am pretty fiscally conservative though. So I don't believe in, in blowing through tons and tons and tons of money unless it provides results. And that's something, I saw you post the other day, something that I thought was really, really um, on point is when you're talking about the intention doesn't matter. So if you have a big social program and the the reason you're doing it is a good cause, but it doesn't work, then it's not a good program, even if the intention is good. And I thought that was actually really sharp because that's kind of where my brain is at. So there's things that I love about the States. I love um, the weather. (laughs) I'm here in minus 20. Um, I've, I've made some amazing friends, some amazing people. I think there is a ton of opportunity in the United States, more opportunity than in a lot of places. Like for example, my kids are seven and nine. They've both been in TV commercials and have made tons of cash in college. You know, that's, that's literally in an education fund for them that we wouldn't have been able to do that here. Yeah, so tell you us know, like um, tell us about then, that 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 journey, and I'm going to use the word journey because it sounds like a song that Journey would write. Like small town girl, Yukon Sarah, learns to play <laughs> drums in like the woodshed, and then becomes a rock star in California, and then becomes a uh, realtor. Like you have the craziest life. You're like the female version of the most interesting man ever from those beer commercials. So, <laughs> so how does one Thank go you. from? So I. Okay, so I was raised by, my mom's Polish and she's an immigrant. She moved to Canada when she was probably in her early 20s. So I was raised by a very independent, strong woman loved who loved traveling. She had tons of stories about travel. And we were always raised um, with the idea that we could do anything as long as we worked hard and were responsible. And we always had, so my brother is the smartest person I know. He's incredibly smart also socially fun and amazing and both of us I feel like we just had a different we were raised differently than a lot of kids and I feel like our ideas were very big um so all through high school I learned to play the drums when I was about 12 years old I found a drum set part of a drum set at a garage sale and my mom said I could pick an instrument and I think they were selling the garage I mean the drum set for four hundred dollars and she said look if you save for half half I'll pay for the other half so I did and um, bought the drums and there was nothing else to do. So I'm in, a, I'm in the big city in the Yukon right now. There's 35,000 people here. The town I grew up in, 2,000 people and was a five hour drive to anything. I'm talking five hour drive to go to McDonald's, five hour drive to go to a movie theater. So there was a ski hill 
and my friends and that drum set. And, and all I did was play drums and work and hang out with my friends. I mean, it actually was pretty awesome. Um, and then lots of other things happened. I went off to college for four years. But then after college in Canada, everybody travels. It's just as a Canadian, it's culturally what you do. You either graduate from school and travel for a year or you graduate from college or university and travel for a year. So I went to Australia. Um, I went actually to other places too, but I spent the majority of my time in Australia where I got in a very bad car accident and broke my back and my arms and my wrists. And I took almost a year to recover. And I moved back to Canada. And in that moment, I thought, what is the one thing I've always wanted to do? And, you know, you feel like a little bit of a whole, you know, your life going flashing before your eyes and stuff. Cause we rolled five times and I mean, easily, you know, it could have been very bad. Yeah. It was very bad. I broke my back, but, um, and the one thing that I always wanted to do was move to Hollywood and go to this music school. Because when I was about 14 years old, I read an article in Rolling Stone about Musicians Institute and it's like the most badass place for a female drummer to be and so I saved my money I worked many jobs I've always had I've always worked I mean my first job I was probably you know eight nine eleven twelve years old I was working full time as a waitress and my mom went and yelled at my boss for like making me work too many hours but I've always worked so I've always had money so I saved my money and uh, moved to Hollywood and did the music school for a couple of years. That's when I met my husband. I did a lot of touring and playing and it was awesome. I absolutely freaking loved every second of it. I love playing drums. Um, and then I did some, some managing bands and doing that sort of thing. And that kind of worked its way into being a personal assistant. So I worked for Mick Fleetwood for a couple of years, the drummer from Fleetwood Mac, which was again one of those crazy life-changing experiences. And Wait, so you so you got to like stories. you got to like tour with uh, with Fleetwood Mac and set up his drums and whatnot, or you were like back well, at I home didn't base? I didn't tour with him, so I was his personal assistant. So anytime he was home, I was there. But I did, yes, get to see Fleetwood Mac uh, at a rehearsal with like 30 other people and just sit there and watch the whole thing with Stevie Nicks, like five feet away. I had dinner with Stevie Nicks one, one night because everybody else was stuck in traffic and it was just Stevie Nicks and I, and it was, yeah. So I've had some pretty flipping cool experiences in LA, but when you have um, kids, as you know, things definitely shift and I, I was change. pregnant and I knew I couldn't do personal assisting anymore because the hours are just so unpredictable and you can't just pick up and leave. You know, sometimes I would get a call at 11 o'clock at night and I need this, or I would be at work until midnight and then back, or I would be flown. I, this sounds super braggy, but I get to go to Maui for work because <laughs> he had, a, he lived there part time too. So I got to work in Maui. So, but you can't just up and leave when you have a newborn baby. So I was pregnant and um, it was a good transition for me. And then that's when my husband and I bought our house in the end of 2008, which turned out to be a very wise financial decision. And um, yes, yeah, so we bought our house and I became obsessed with real estate. And my realtor was amazing. And I'm still friends with him. And he's the one that actually told me, you know, you should get your license. You should consider doing real estate because... Yeah, it just, I just was so obsessed with it. I think he was 
probably tired of me talking about comps in the neighborhood and stuff. He's like, just buy a house already. And you're like, I don't want to buy a house. Yeah. Then I have to stop talking about real estate. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. So yeah, so we got our house, which was amazing. And then also, once I bought my house, I realized my husband and I, we had a big house, four bedrooms in Mount Washington. And my husband and I realized, well, shit, we can just rent the rooms in our house to our friends. We're hanging out with them all the time anyways. And that'll pay over our mortgage. And we can live like royalty, which is what we did. It was amazing. You know, we had money to travel. We were able to save. So when I had my babies, I could take a year off with each of them. Um, yeah, so it was pretty good. Now I'm just reminiscing. And I'm also drinking a Caesar. I don't know if you can see it. This is a very Canadian drink, which is kind of like a Bloody Mary, but it's made with Clamato juice and it's much tastier. Nice. I, I want to go back to um, I want to go back to the drumming because we've had a few people on. We've had a we've had a drag queen on. We've had a you know st uh, a struggling aspiring comedian. Well, he's not aspiring. He's doing it. He's making money. But it's like I kind of think all those jobs that people to move to L.A. to be you know uh, singer, dancer, actor, drummer, whatever. Yeah. You know the ecosystem is just brutal, and like all those yeah. all those entertainment jobs, ninety nine point nine percent of the money goes to the top one percent. So I want to hear the struggling Sarah gigs where, you know, you're playing drums, driving three hours to make 20 bucks and two free cocktails or whatnot. Tell us about the ecosystem oh. of being an up and coming drummer in a band. Cause I know, I know you guys put out a couple albums, right? Yes. No, something like that. Yeah, we've done, I've done a lot of different things. Oh, and, and, and trust me, we had a lot of those gigs. When I first moved to LA, I only ever planned to go to the school and then move back to Canada and be, a Canadian in a big Canadian rock band because it's it's there's not as many female musicians here and I feel like it's easier to stand out whereas in LA there are so many musicians but I met my husband and I started playing shows so I was in a band called the Cavalry and our slogan or whatever was first in last out which is still I think epic and it was just straight up rock and roll I got a part-time job at a recording studio pretty much in Hollywood. And it was actually a really kind of high-end recording studio. And I really only got the job because I figured if I worked there, I'd be able to get us in a record for free, which it actually, we did. Um, so we did some recordings, played lots of shows and we had, so we decided to do a Northern California tour. And one of our shows, the only people that were there was the bartender and the doorman. And we'd sent posters and we sent marketing. We thought, oh, you know, you just show up. This place will be packed. They were the only people there. And then the other band that we were on tour with, which was my husband's band, of course. Uh, but we played, we're like, let's make it our best show of all time. And we went mental. Our lead singer was jumping off the stage and hanging on the lights and we were drinking. We just had so much fun. I hope there's a video of that somewhere we still talk about I still play music with the same guys I played with for over 10 years we're still really good friends um and that we always talk about that being our favorite show of all time and the bar the bartender was like you're our favorite band ever we've never seen so much energy um we're like well if we come back you're gonna have to have more than two people there yeah that's amazing pretty funny when I was uh when I was a kid growing up uh I went to high school in Glendale and I saw um, uh, System of a Down play a house oh, yeah. a house party, 
And it's when they were really, really, really into drugs. Yeah. Really into drugs. And like the first three songs were fucking incoherent because I think they were just coming down off of whatever the fuck they were coming down (laughs) off of. Um, Sorry. Sorry to sell out System of Down because I love the band. And and many of them have gotten clean and sober now. I'm very happy for them. But um, I just remember like when they got big a couple years later, I was like, oh, I got to see these guys in like a garage. That's crazy. I think it was 90. 394 somewhere around there um yeah and so i just think like you know if you guys want to become the next u2 that bartender and doorman they got they got a free show from like you know the future pearl jam um so how, how long did you guys how long did you guys play together for a few years i think and i was in and out of various other bands during that time too i used to get called a lot for tribute band work and it was all um out of town so we'd fly into utah or we'd go overseas and we got to play all over all over the world really um but those were really stressful gigs because they would call so usually it's because a drummer canceled or wasn't able to make it last minute or they were double booked or something and I would get a call and they would say like hey Sarah are you available to go on tour in three weeks here's our set list 30 songs you have to learn them all and you know let us know if you're in and the pay was really great Um, but you know, those were stressful because you're jumping in with a whole bunch of musicians. You don't, you don't even personally know them, the songs. And, and it's funny because a lot of the, I did a lot of ACDC tributes and stuff. And the funny thing about ACDC is the songs are very simple, but they're all almost this, all the same, but just a little different. So, you know, you'll be in the middle and once you're in your 25th, ACDC song it's like have a drink on me ah you know all the songs you start just like losing track of what song you're even in um but I mean it was it was a blast and I felt really cool I don't feel you don't feel cool when you have kids it's like it goes away no so I'm glad I got to savor it when I did and we were really into the sunset strips so we'd play at the uh, we had really good friends that worked at the Roxy, so we get really great shows at the Roxy. Here's a tip, too. Hollywood tip. Actually, probably anywhere. If you are nice to people that work the door and the bartenders and, like, really – and the bouncers and, and make friends and, like – and genuinely, like, not do it to get anything, you will never have problems getting in to see a band. You'll never – and we love – there's one of my favorite bouncers at the Viper Room. Um Oh, he was freaking awesome. Big Dave. And he, you know, we were so nice. We were nice to him and he was nice to us, but he was such a sweetheart. And any, so anytime we rolled up as the band to the Viper Rim, it would be like, you know, a huge line and he'd just be like, come on in. So it was fun. It was really fun. I, I didn't make a lot of money at yeah. all. When I was touring overseas, I did, but those gigs were few and far between. And really anytime you're doing cover gigs, you're making money, but it's like sort of soul crushing because there's only so many times one person can play brown eyed girl before they want to jump off a bridge. Like it just, it takes away the creativity when you're constantly playing other people's songs. So you do the tribute or the, and the tribute band for me was really fun. That was a blast, but the cover stuff, um, you do that so that you can play original music, pay gazillions of dollars and make absolutely no money. Of so course, we were pretty sure we were going to hit it really big, you know, but uh, didn't happen. Didn't happen. Weird. By the I'm, way, I'm the biggest female drummer to come out of Watson Lake, Yukon. 
Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> the only drummer to come Town of 2000. And, and by the way, uh, I do have to call you out on one thing. I always love it when, um, you know, cute blonde girls from their 20s are like, oh, yeah, all you got to do is be nice to the doorman and you can get anywhere, anywhere, in anywhere. Guess what? When you're, <laughs> when you're a chubby, middle-aged white guy, it doesn't matter how nice I am. I'm just not getting to the front of the line because I don't have boobs and blonde hair and I'm not a talented drummer. So I'm going to call bullshit on that, that you can just be nice and okay. get your way to the front of the line. It might have helped a little. Might I'm not going to lie. Yeah. might have a little. Back before my, you know, my, yeah. Definitely, definitely back then I was, I was in much better shape. And, it, it, well, you know, it, yes, it does go, it does go a little bit, maybe. Well, it's maybe funny. The when you're uh, when you're drumming, it's got to be impossible to be in bad shape, right? Like you look at these, um, yeah. you look at older bands, you know, that have been doing the thing for 30, 40 years or whatever. Yeah. You know, and look you just Tommy look. Lee. Oh yeah, and you're have like, you oh, have you ever seen a chubby Tommy Lee? No. Right? You're like the drummer is in amazing shape, and ooh, the other four yeah. guys they kind of let themselves go, but the drummer always looks <laughs> awesome. So. Drummer um, always looks great, and it's not even the plane; it's the lugging the freaking gear at the end of the show. <laughs> so my bandmates, I, I was in a band with all these guys, right? It was all guys and me, and the Cavalry, which later we became the Night Riders, and we still do a show once in a while. We did one for my 40th birthday, which was a freaking blast. Um, but at the end of the show, they all get wasted, and you know I'm carrying a bass drum thank thankfully i was married to a drummer that didn't doesn't really drink much so he would help me with my gear but moving all the gear is a good workout too and it's always in a dark alley and you're carrying your bass drum and all your cymbal stands and you know you always have a couple drinks after you play or while you play and uh yeah ah, it was it was a really good time i really miss it i love 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 playing drums and what i love is I don't know. For me, it's shows. I'm very social. COVID's been really hard for me because I'm a, I'm a social animal. You know you probably why I'm on your podcast because I love to talk. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you love to talk too, but I'm a social animal. I feed energy off being around other people. So me being home alone and not socializing is really hard. Um, so yeah, I miss those days though. Man, did we ever have a blast. And I have so many crazy stories. I have a story. So I don't know if you've ever been to a place called shoot on Highland and Hollywood, the biggest dive bar of all time. Oh shoot. What was it called? And that place was like the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. Like you would go into it and, and just some random adventure would come out. The whiskey, like a crazy one time we were in there. I was with, with one friend of mine and some random guy walked in and, and we started talking to him. He started buying us drinks. He's like, do you want to go to a party? We're like, of course we want to go to a party. And the next thing you know, we were in a super sketchy part of town and he walked us up these stairs and we went through four different levels of security. The first one, they took our phones away and we were kind of drunk. So we were like, oh, it seems like this might be a bad idea, but we're never going to find out unless we try it. <laughs> and then the second level, the guy had walkie talkies and anyways, we get up there and it's just a bunch of kind of what I probably am guessing are high-end call girls and just random people that I didn't know any of them, but apparently Britney Spears had just left. This was in 2004, maybe just like random weird stories that uh, LA, like random LA stories. LA. So fun. I, I remember uh, I, I, I was, uh, I was dating a volleyball player, um, 
and uh, she was a very tall girl. And she's like, hey, you want to go to this party in, I think it was Downey or something. I'm like, yeah, sure, let's go to this party in Downey. Well, it turned out one of the guys on the band in the band The Offspring was really into tall girls. And so he would invite, like, the entire, you know, UCLA female volleyball team to his parties because he was just infatuated with tall women. And the guys that were in The Offspring, I think it was Downey, was where they originally fun. They bought, like, five houses in a row, tore out the backyard, and they would just have these epic parties that spanned, like, five houses. And so I ended up in some room watching, like, old VHS tapes of, like, T-Rex playing guitar. I'm with some insanely hot girl who's getting hit on by, like, somebody from The Offspring, so I have no chance of going home with her. And it was, it was just the most surreal <laughs> experience. And I'm like, this only happens in L.A. Like, there's, there's nobody from in Sandusky, LA. Ohio, who's like, oh, yeah, I ended up at Bono's Christmas party or whatever. And it's like, this just doesn't happen. Yeah. But L.A., just weird shit happens. It, those days were so fun. We used to do the, you know, the Viper Room, Sunset Strip, and there was always random people going in and out. My my favorite Viper Room story was I was there with Clark, who's my husband, and Dennis Rodman was there, and he bought me a shot. And I was like, again, same thing. It's like, and you look up, and he's 100 feet tall. I mean, his head <laughs> touches the ceiling. His hands are like the size of, you know, they're this big. And he's just like, can I buy you a shot? I'm like, of course you can buy me a shot. Again, just like weird. You know what's funny too is the celebrities that I, I'm I don't care about the celebrity part of it, but I just think it's it's really funny. And it's so weird how people actually look in real life. Like I saw an old lady crossing the street once in um West Hollywood. Turned out it was Madonna. Oh, there you go. I'm like, oh, she's so tiny. And she's like, but yeah, it's just LA. LA is a is a strange place, but it's a hell of a good time when you're in your 20s. Yeah. I had so much fun. I was, and I'm glad uh, that I got that out of my system before I had kids. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. And and how cool that you got to share a bunch of those stories with, you know, Clark, who's now your husband, back when you guys were just kind of like single and or dating and or thinking about getting married, but just like wild rock stars man like how cool that you got to share that together yeah it was really fun and we um yeah it, it was funny because the first so our friend our friend said you guys have to meet because you're, he's like the male version of you he's a drummer you guys have so much he loves motley crew and kind of like you guys have so much in common those were the two most important things in our lives right Clearly. motley crew and drums and so we we my space he my spaced me and we ended up meeting, but we met and then we got married two months later in Vegas by a singing Elvis, which is what you do when you're, yeah, six people. My entire wedding cost $289. And that included the limo ride, the champagne, uh, I think 12 still photographs and a bouquet and a little boutonniere for $289. Yeah. See, this is money we ever spent. This is why you could afford the down payment on a house, which ended up being one of your best financial moves because you didn't drop thirty thousand dollars on a wedding like most morons do. Yes, thirty. Not not even like people spend fifty grand on it. This is one of my biggest things, and I talk about this on my podcast. Is I just think weddings are the hugest waste of money. First of all, whoever's getting married, the bride and the groom, they're so busy. All all day all these people come they can't spend any time with them because they have to do the photos and then they have to do the cake cutting and then oh we have to do this and we have to do the first pink 
there's so much bullshit that you have to do traditionally with weddings. There's always tension with some weird uncle or, you know, the stepfather and the mother aren't getting on. Someone always gets really wasted and does something inappropriate. I just think weddings are such a waste of money and any wedding that we've gone to where uh, the bride and groom have spent a ton of money, they're already divorced. I mean, there's a few of my really close friends whose weddings, I think were more for the parents and that's fine, especially if they're paying for it. Right. But as a young couple, you know, the idea, and that was never my dream of having like the white dress. And I got married in a Motley Crue halter top. Clark was wearing, <laughs> it's like so ridiculous now, but it's funny. I mean, it's just funny. I, I think a lot of the times I do things, say things just to say that I did them. You know, like I went skydiving, not because, not really because I've ever wanted to go skydiving, but I did it so I could tell people I've been skydiving just for like the cool factor. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I just did it so I look cool. Do you, <laughs> do you think that comes kind from- Kind of the Molly uh, Crew thing. Yeah. Do you think that comes from growing up in a small town where, you know, you, you've told me you were working at a hotel when you were, you know, 11 years old, cleaning pillowcases and like, yeah. it's got to be a pretty monotonous, boring existence when, you know, you, you've- you know, hopefully not confided in me because I'm just about to say it publicly, but you know, your family was not well off growing up yeah. and everybody was working their ass off two or three jobs. Do you think there's a little bit of that? Right. Like, Oh, I've got to taste as much of life because I came from this little tiny town where you probably know people that are still working at the same restaurant they were working at when they were 13. Yeah, I think, I don't know what it is. And my brother has that same too. I definitely think the reason we love travel and we love, we're foodies. We love restaurants is because growing up, there was one restaurant in town. So, but we've always sought out adventure. And I had really great friends growing up, which I'm still really close with. And all of us really had this weird adventure seeker. I think that's a Canadian thing too. Canadians love adventure. We love doing, like they always joke about how if you want your party to be fun, always invite a Canadian. Because they'll be like, let's do this. And all, you know, you know. So, and I also, music was so, I remember the first, this sounds really silly, but the first time I heard Skid Row at a dance or something, and I remember freezing and just being like, what the fuck is this? This is amazing. So music and adventure was always my thing. And I just always sought that out. Um, but I did never, like I lived in Vancouver for a while. I, I lived in Australia for a year. I never felt like I was in the place that was like really me until I moved to Hollywood and I'd walk around and everybody would have tattoos and, you know, there were bands and music. And I think I just felt really, especially when I went to the music school, I really felt like I belonged there. Um, just that people understood how much, how important music was. I mean, it really was my number one. I mean, I was joked about like, I don't know if I can ever get married because music will come before my husband, you know? <laughs> right. You know, it's funny. And it's funny because I think my husband used to fight with every, every single other girlfriend he ever had because they get mad that he'd spent so much time playing drums. So never had that problem with me. That's amazing. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that falling in love with Skid Row and the music. I, I never played music. I don't know why. Maybe I was intimidated by it. But I will never forget my dad uh, and his family ran a U-Haul truck dealership. And sometimes people would drive cross-country and they'd leave stuff in the truck and never come back for it. And somebody left. They moved from – I'll just – I'll never forget the story. I was probably 10 or 11 years old. They moved from Chicago to L.A. and they never came back. And they left a double-decker, like, like – 
satchel that had 60 uh, cassette tapes per side, and they left it. And, uh, and so, so my, my my dad gave it to me. It was quiet, riot, guns and roses, skid row, Bon Jovi. I wore out every single one of those cassette tapes. I mean, there was a point where just every late eighties, early nineties hair band, I could sing every album start to finish. And my mom was like disgusted. She was just like, Oh, you can't listen to this. You know, (laughs) she was a little bit on that. It's devil worshiping music, you know? And my dad was just like, shut up, Candy. It's fine. Um, but yeah, I'll never forget uh, Appetite for Destruction opening the, the the song liner notes and seeing the picture of the naked girl getting attacked by the robot. And I was like, you know, I'm like 11 years yeah. old. I'm like, what yeah. the fuck is this? Like, you know, it's like discovering rock and roll. <laughs> and um, and yeah, ever since then, I mean, I've seen Guns N' Roses probably 15 times and just any, any rock yeah. band from that Same genre, I'm just, I'm just in love with. Yep. So um, I guess I should have picked up a I, drum set I like just, you did. And I remember, right? I, well, I remember the same thing. I mean, that music, and especially in the Yukon when there wasn't a lot going on, every single party, every single hangout with my friends was always centered around music. I mean, you come up to the Yukon, people love, they love music. And actually, my husband's band played last year before COVID, so not not this summer, but the summer before, and, and uh, they love live music here. But I remember those albums. I remember Guns N' Roses. I remember Discovery, Discovery Motley Crue, Twisted Sister. I was in first year, no, maybe I was still in high school. I was, I went to private school for a very small amount of time and we snuck out of private school and we went to go see D Snyder had just gotten out of jail or something. And he did a show in a tiny dive bar. There was almost nobody there. And my friend and I were just like, fuck Twisted Sister rules. You know, <laughs> just like, I've always been just obsessed with music. It's so funny. And it's fun to see it now through my kids' eyes because they're starting to discover music too. But I don't know. They think I'm not cool when I like take out. I've, I was playing gun, uh, Bon Jovi yesterday, trying to have them have a dance party with me. And they told me I was embarrassing them. So Not cool anymore. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, is there is there anybody you played with, opened with, ran into a, at a show where you were like a little starstruck or you're like, oh, that's weird. I just met like one of my heroes. So I was hired to play a drum drum line on, on Gene Simmons roast. So that was a really weird one. I was called I used to. Do you remember when everything was on Craigslist? Yeah, just everything like all opportunities were on Craigslist. I found my apartment, my roommates. So I used to enter, uh, I used to just respond to things all the time, like looking for a drummer for this. And there was an ad that said, looking for a female drummer for a comedy show or something. I was like, yeah, fuck it, I'll enter. So they called me and then they asked me to come and audition, which I did, and do some drumline stuff, which we were doing a lot of at school. So I was able to do it. And then they told me, oh, this is for Gene Simmons for his roast. So it was at the key club downtown. So it's two full days. We're just sitting there. And then I had, they did like full hair and lashes and makeup. And then my friend and I, cause they asked if I had another uh, female friend, the drummer friend that could do drum lines. So I called her and we came out and did like drum line. And then Gene Simmons would walk out and do something and sit down. And then we walk out and I was super stoked about it. I'm like, this is amazing. And then at the very, very last second there was a whole bunch of girls I think they had 15 different girls and then they had us the drummer girls 
at the very last second, the producer was like, you know, it'd be awesome is if all the girls had the kiss makeup on. So they did the like, you know, so we're playing, but like nobody could tell it. I mean, I don't even know if it's on the internet. Actually, I should look. It probably is. But it took me like four days to get that shit off my face. Oh, Chris is going to have to look up the Gene Simmons. uh, Chris is going to have to look up the Gene Simmons roast. Gene Simmons comedy roast. It's crazy, though. It's like three hours long or something. So I found little snippets of it, but I haven't found a cut of the whole thing. It was a whole bunch of like, um, Liza and no, not uh, what's her name? Uh, just a lot, a lot of comedians and stuff were on it, and then they would come up. Steve O was there, I think. There's just a really random amount of random celebrities, and then there was like an after party, and we were all kind of sitting around and hanging out. But yeah, I've got a couple pictures of Gene Simmons with his arm, you know, around me, and his giant boots that are like this big. That was pretty. That was kind of trippy. That was pretty. That was pretty neat, actually. That's cool. Yeah, that was one of my favorite ones. And and what do you like? Obviously, you you've played your whole life, and you went to the music institute. So I'm I'm guessing I don't know shit about music, but I'm guessing you're a pretty proficient drummer. What do what what is again that kind of financial ecosystem in that world? Like, what does a show pay, or what is like playing on somebody's album pay, or traveling, or like what did you get paid for the drum line for two days to sit around and play for Gene Simmons? It, it all sounds so weird right. to me. Like, how do you make a That's living a doing question. that? I can't remember how much I got paid. It was probably only a couple grand or something. I don't think it was crazy big money. I don't remember thinking like, ooh, this will last me. But you know what? The the slog of being a dr- of being a musician, the amount of money that you put out is absolutely mind numbing. You never go into music for the money. I mean, you don't. If you are a lottery winner as far as the music lottery, um, and you make it into a band you're successful you know uh, that's amazing but the chances of that are very 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 small I mean we know a ton a ton a ton of musicians I probably out of the hundreds that we know there's probably less than 10 we know that are making a good living at it so you know playing most of the shows in LA you're actually doing what's called pay to play which means if you're playing at the Viper Room, you're playing at the Roxy, you're playing at the Whiskey, any of those places, they'll give you 50 tickets and they'll say, here's 50 tickets. Uh, We're going to need $500 back the night that you play and you can sell the tickets for whatever you want and keep the rest. So if you don't sell 50 tickets, you actually pay out of pocket, which, and a lot of bands, did it because they just wanted to play right they wanted to play the whiskey they wanted to play the the viper room we were pretty good at self-promoting so we never we usually weren't out money but we never really made money to be honest but in the original bands the tribute bands and that was different i mean you get a couple grand usually to to play for a weekend or one or two shows depending on the gig i mean some gigs played really well if we're doing uh playing for the troops overseas because you know, we did Korea and Germany and we went to Iraq, which was probably the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, but those paid really well, but they were also really grueling. You know, you're getting maybe four or five hours of sleep, you're moving gear and playing shows in 110 degrees. Um, so those were, those were really exhausting. So you never felt like, you felt like you were, you were working for that money. 
and those paid well, but, but the actual shows, I mean, you, again, you would just never, and our music school was really expensive. So a lot of people made money teaching and you can make, I don't know, maybe a hundred bucks an hour teaching or something like that. Um, but everything you do, you pay. The gear is expensive. Every time you record, it's a ton of money. Every time you need, you know, like my drum set was probably $7,000. So gear is really expensive. Thankfully as a drummer, even a set of sticks. I mean, a set of sticks is like 15 bucks. Yeah. You're going and through you a couple of those through, shows. If I played a show, right. Well, and if you were playing overseas, after you do the shows, people, you always have a meet and greet and people want the sticks. And you're not going to tell an 18 year old, you know, army guy that's in freaking Iraq, well, I can't give you my sticks because they're like seven bucks each. So you're just like, take the sticks, take the fucking sticks. Um, so honestly, like, I, I don't even want to think about the amount of money I've put into it over the years and what I've gotten back because 100%, tens of thousands of dollars I've put in that I have not gotten back. So but, wait, tell us I mean, about, the life experience has been amazing. Tell us about playing in Iraq. How, how does that come about? And what is that like, again, being a blonde female musician from Canada playing for the U.S. troops in Iraq, I'm guessing in the middle of a war is why you were there. Um, what the yeah. fuck? What, what was yeah. that all about? So it was crazy. Well, what's crazy about this? So obviously I'm a realtor. We, my husband and I put an offer on the house. It was at the very end of 2008. So it's probably September. Um, and it was during the war. And I got a call that said, hey, um, you know, we're, we're going to Iraq. Our drummer couldn't make it. It was at, so it was an ACDC tribute. And I think Chris Slade, the actual drummer from ACDC, was supposed to go on the tour. Um, and then he couldn't make it at the last minute. So I think I had two and a half weeks notice. Um, and they gave me the list of the songs. We had, I think, two rehearsals. And not even enough time to go. 30 songs is a lot of songs. So we'd play for two, maybe three hours, two and a half hours, something. It was long. Um, and so I'm in the middle of buying a house. So stressful. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never, I didn't know anything about real estate. Um, and we moved into this house. We'd moved out of the apartment. So we're in a house. There's literally nothing there. It was a foreclosure. And before the house went to the bank, the seller or the owners took every single light fixture out of the house. So to have any light in the house, we needed to plug in lamps. So we went to Ikea and bought some lamps and had lamps and we were trying to fix it up ourselves. So we're pulling out carpet, scraping popcorn ceilings. We had no kitchen because the kitchen was gutted. We were going to reno it. And then I'm like, oh, by the way, honey, I'm going to go to Iraq for three Three weeks and at the time I was making extra money by being a nanny so I was really into music still so I was playing a lot of shows um, but I was also a part-time nanny for an amazing family um, in Silver Lake like the sweetest little boy so yeah so I got the call and then next thing you know I'm at the airport and we're on a plane and we fly into shoot where do we fly into the Beirut I can't even remember um and you know, what's crazy is I remember getting off the plane and it's the only time that I've ever traveled where I actually was scared. We got off the plane and our tour manager, who was also kind of security, was this massive guy and all the women are covered from head to toe. And we dressed modestly because we knew that we were going into a Muslim country. And, um, but the way that the men looked at us 
And it wasn't like, ooh, it was like, I want to kill you. It was really freaking terrifying being in that airport. And it was super packed. And he's like, stay with me. Don't do anything. And then we were flown um, from a military aircraft into Iraq. And then we played, I think maybe eight, seven or eight different military bases throughout Iraq. So we would play a show and then we'd get, we'd be in a helicopter or we'd be in a carrier. I mean, we were in all different types of aircrafts and we would fly to the next show. We never knew if we were playing. We never knew what was happening. And for our own safety, they wouldn't tell us anything. So some, some warnings they'd say, okay, we just sit. And it's not like, it's not like there's a scheduled flight coming in, you know, where it's like, it'll be here in 20 minutes. You go and you sit and you wait on, you know, just a platform basically. And it could be half an hour. It could be four hours. So we just chilled and we would sit there and it was hot as fuck. It was, uh, over 110 degrees when we were there. It was so hot and really, really dusty. I mean, you're in the middle of the desert. And we would wait and then a flight would come and pick us up and we'd do our sound check. We'd go quickly, get something to eat. And then we'd start getting ready to play the show and we would play for three hours. And then we would do a meet and greet and a signing. And then we would go eat again and we'd sit. Usually we try and sit with just anyone because you know some of the bases we went to were very small and the guys that were there hadn't seen other people for five months six months so they just want someone to talk to they probably hadn't seen a girl uh they probably had seen a (laughs) blonde hair girl in like a year you know right um, not not to be too raunchy but you were probably the standing fantasy of a lot of troops overseas (laughs) for some time they're like oh the hot blonde behind the drums you know i I hope i hope that's not a guy with long hair back there or something you 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 probably uh, you probably impressed upon a a lot of young men well what's crazy too is when i went to iraq the one thing that stuck out and blew my mind was how young all the military guys were i expected and and the air force too Someone's flying you in a helicopter and you look and you're like, this kid's like 19 years old. You know, these guys were young, 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 young. And I just had this, I'm a very empathetic person. I'm a total empath. You'll know this from our politics. And I remember just looking out and being like, these guys are babies. They're so young. So we just sit and talk and we were there. um, I don't remember this. Maybe it was Iraq. I think it was another tour. No, it was Korea and it was Thanksgiving. And to me, our Canadian Thanksgiving is different, um, a different time of year, but you could tell the kids that were sad and they were missing their home and they'd be sitting in the the mess hall or whatever, and just kind of their head down. So we go and talk to them and try and just boost morale a little. And it's weird because you feel almost, I felt really guilty because I felt like I had this amazing experience going to these places you're treated like a freaking rock star i mean we were i was just like some some girl from canada i didn't deserve it but we're treated really well and you go and you sit and you see that what the guys are actually dealing with we went and we toured some of the hospitals in iraq and you meet some of the soldiers that had been you know through a lot of shit and seen their friends get killed or their friends and you know you just pause for a second it's like i'm getting paid to go and play drums in iraq and these guys are giving up everything to be here and they're not getting the benefits that i you know you feel guilty because you're treated so well you're meeting the all the heads up you know the the most um 
influential people in the military that are there and you're being, you get to shake their hand and take the picture and stuff. But, you know, when these 18 year olds would say, thank you so much for coming and you, you guys are and you're just like well we're not really doing shit like we were getting paid to be treated really really well and you guys are really doing the work I mean it, it felt it felt a little weird about it kind of yeah. it's almost like doing a big charity thing but getting paid for it like it, it felt a little weird it felt weird but it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in my entire life it's I, probably the thing other than my children that I'm the most proud of because yeah. I just uh, I feel so honored that I was able to have that experience. It's something I'll never forget. Kind of, yeah, it's pretty freaking cool. Kind of hard to complain about the missing light fixtures when you get home, when you see what people are living with right? in the military, we, getting shot right? at, you know, loss of, loss of and we life. Went, and we went to, um, you know, there would be, we went to one base that was 12 guys in bunk beds in one room with no air conditioning in Iraq with like it being 110 degrees. You know, it was just a whole, um, our, my favorite story from Iraq though, and I hopefully I wouldn't get in trouble for saying this, but I, probably not. Um, we played a show and we got a la we finished the show and someone says, there's something for you guys from the special forces. And I'm like, Ooh, what's that? And we, it's a laminated invitation. Now you're in the middle of the desert in Iraq and you're like, how do they have a laminator? Anyways. It was like, so you guys think you're hot shit or, so, or cool or something. If you're really cool, then you will battle us, the special forces, to a rock band battle at blah, 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 blah. And we'll pick you up after the show. And we asked our tour manager, like, can we go? Can we please go? This is going to be so amazing. He was not happy about it. But he's like, fuck it, go. This is going to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So they came with their military vehicles. They picked us up. They drove us out of the wire, which is the safety of the base, which we are not like contractually, we are not supposed to leave the safety of the base. So we go and we go to this kind of bunker, which is part of a hill, but it's like a secret cave inside the hill. And we go in and they're power and they have the, the rock band guitar hero thing. Oh, like the video they game. Like they, they, wanted, they yeah. wanted to challenge you yeah. to rock band the video game. They, yes. So they had power. They had rock band, a video game. They had booze and they had cigarettes. And you're, again, you're in Iraq, you're in a Muslim country. You are not supposed to be drinking, even if it's on bases or whatever, but I won't say what happened. But anyways, so we battled them and it was one of the most amazing nights of all time. And you're looking at these guys and some of them were undercover. We weren't allowed to take pictures or anything. And this was before cell phone pictures anyways. Right. Um, but I remember these guys, like their arms were like this big and tattoos and they looked like they were Iraqi, like they looked like locals. And I remember thinking we could disappear and nobody would ever know where we were, where we'd gone, but they were so sweet and so amazing. And uh, they took our email addresses and they're like, look, we're never going to hear, we're never going to be able to talk to you guys again or see you like 50% of us will probably die. It's like, oh. But I think like seven months later, it's like seven months later, I got an email from a random Hotmail account and it was like, it was so fun hanging out with you in Iraq. I hope you guys are doing awesome. Dan, 
N or something. It was one of the guys. He'd like send a hotmail from a fake hotmail account just to say hi. And it was really fun. But that was probably the one of the coolest things I've ever got to experience. That's pretty freaking I'm telling cool. you, this is going to be in the Yukon Sarah movie where it's like you, some special forces, CIA <laughs> operatives, Navy SEAL guys in a bunker playing Rockstar the video game. Like, yeah. that, that's some shit. If like, doesn't that sound made up? Yeah, if you, I was just going to say, if you weren't you, if I didn't know you, I would call bullshit. But I know it's you, and I know that that actually yeah. happened. That's amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Well, you got cigarette cigars from my Iraq trip. I did. I, they're, they're in my, they're in my uh, cigar humidor as a collector's edition. I got the, the cigars with the uh, Operation That's Freedom awesome. uh, uh, wrapper. That was very cool. So, so you, come, you come back. It's and funny then... because. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say they gave me a bunch of Iraqi cigarettes, too. The soldiers would give us cigarettes. So when I moved back, when I got back from Iraq to the States and I'd go do a show or something, people were always bumming cigarettes. So they they oh, can I have a cigarette? And I'd give them one from Iraq and they'd take a drag and just be like, oh, my God, what is this? And I'd be like, I don't know. I just got it in Iraq. Yeah, I think it's and then opium it was like, or you something. You were in Iraq? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, no biggie. Special Amazing. Forces rock band so, so, so you come back, and then sadly, Yukon yeah. Sarah has to become Sarah Skelton and grow up and do real estate. And what's what's that transition yeah. like? Obvi- obviously, it had to do with you know starting a family and having kids. But how do you go from like rock star to real estate? I mean, I know that you're a rock star real estate agent, but but is is there is there a letdown there, or is it a different type of satisfaction? You know, it's a different type of satisfaction. There's things that I think my spirit loves about real estate I love the fact that I make my schedule I love the fact that if I want to work with somebody I can or if I don't I don't have to I love that it's flexible I can um, I love being around people I love the socialization of it and I try and project what I want in life which is I want my clients to be fun and cool and interesting and so you'll see that my clients a lot of them have tattoos and a lot of them are musicians and um, I'm not a stuffy, you know, but, but it's given me flexibility and freedom and financially, obviously it's been great. I didn't know what it would be like when I got into it, but it felt very natural. And, um, I think it really works well with my personality. I'm really a type and I'm a very, um, I'm always seeking out opportunities subconsciously. Consciously, I think I seek out opportunities subconsciously, like, for example, going through the Craigslist ads every single day and just typing in female drummer or just drummer and seeing what popped up and applying to every single thing. You know, that's, that's always how I've lived my life. So people would always say, you're so lucky you have these crazy experiences. But when I broke it down, my luck was always created from a random opportunity by me subconsciously seeking opportunities. You know, it's the people that say I never win anything, but they never enter any into any draws. You know, it's the same kind of mentality. So it really worked with my personality. Um, I had a really great mentor when I started, which I think gave me a really big heads up. And yeah, it just seemed very natural to me. I love driving around. I love seeing houses. I love houses, um, different styles and layouts and so it just became really natural. And then I started making really good money. I mean, I made more, more money in one month than I probably did in 10 years if you added up all the drumming gigs that I'd done, you yeah. know, with really no 
of specialized training towards real estate other than doing the exam and taking the real estate course. So it really, um, but you know, for every real estate agent that does well, there's 95 others out of a hundred that don't do a sale in a year. So yeah. by the second year I was taught, I was a top producer, which again, I don't think it's necessarily about working hard. I think it's about creating opportunity and doing what works, not necessarily the hours. It's how you use the hours. So that's always kind of been my motto. Yeah. And you know, something that I'm always impressed with, with you and a couple other realtors that I've worked with is like, there seems to be those realtors that are just, you know, and it's fine. They're kind of going from deal to deal. And then there's realtors that really run their business like a business. And I know even being back in the Yukon, you know, you have team members here, you're still running a very successful corporation in, you know, California with other people doing the agent stuff and whatnot. And now you're selling real estate up in Canada. So, you know, when I think of the party animal, artistic, drummer, free spirit. I don't think of somebody that could then pivot to like run their business like a business, right? It's that, it's that uh, clearly a right. fallacy that creative people also can't be business people. So what do you think it is about you or about your time drumming or about your childhood where you can make that pivot from like, oh, I just want to be a free spirit and play music to like, oh, now I have a business to run and I see the opportunity and I want to run it like a business. That doesn't seem like a very natural transition. Well, what's funny is I always ran my bands like a business. So although we didn't necessarily make a ton of money, we were very organized. Whether it's, for me, it wasn't so important to make money. It was important to get people to our shows. And um, that doesn't always necessarily, necessarily correlate with a big paycheck. But to me, if I'm playing a show, I want people to be there. So we were very organized. We had split up. I booked all of our shows. Um, I did all the contracts. I would do a lot of the marketing. We would have a band meeting at least once a week, usually twice a week. We would determine the songs. We would. So we were actually quite organized. And I was always the one that was, okay, guys, these are our goals. This is how many people each of you need to bring to the show this is what time we're going to be there. This is what load in is. These are the songs. So I always did organize. And actually I started helping my friends bands too, by semi-managing them, by helping book shows and doing marketing. And so I think that became, and I remember joking because the first time I got business cards, I was like, fuck it. I put a drum set on them with my info on the back. So just their cool flaming pink drum set on a black card and my info on the back and all the real estate agents at my brokerage were like, I don't understand. Like that's not real estate. And I'm like, doesn't matter. It's interesting. So if somebody sees that card, they're going to pick it up and be like, huh, it's a drum set. That's cool. Are you a drummer? And it's like, of course, are you a musician? Yes, I am. So I, I don't know. It was to me, it actually felt like a pretty natural pivot. And again, I'd done personal assisting for musicians. So I worked for Mick Fleetwood, who was a drummer and it's interesting drummers often are business businessy people because we're very well I wouldn't say I'm not analytical but there's drumming and numbers and counting and uh time and consistency and yeah so I think drummers actually are good good with business and I always had our money and I always ordered the merch and decided you know how much we should order so yeah 
Yeah, so right, it so actually it felt sense. pretty natural. So, so you had, you did have all those same skills. You just figured out one day, hey, I can put these skills to something that actually makes money. <laughs> my parents were thrilled. They were thrilled. I remember my dad saying something to me like, and actually I have to, my parents were amazing. They really taught me how to manage money. So I thought we were poor growing up. It turns out my parents are just really freaking good with money. So they saved everything. They didn't spend money on stupid things. They didn't, they always saved. And I think a lot of it comes to do, you know, with their generation, my mom, um, they're, they're almost my dad's 83. My mom's in her late seventies. So they grew up, my mom grew up in Poland, you know, that long ago where you would have to stand in line for, to buy butter. Yeah. Post-World War II. That's... Maybe, yeah. And they would maybe have meat once a month or once every two weeks and she never wasted anything, but they were always really, really, really good with money. And, and that's something they've taught me. I've always been very good at managing money. Um, and I always learn no matter how much you make, it's what you spend. So I like nice things. I love traveling. I'm an air mile fanatic. I've learned all the loopholes and things I've traveled. I don't think I've bought a plane ticket in 20 years and I've been all over the place. So I've learned the system, the credit card journey. <laughs> There's all sorts of random skills that you can use, um, which my brother taught me a lot of that. When we were 16 or 17, we learned that if you got a credit card, they would send you these checks in the mail and you'd get one air mile for every dollar on the check. So my brother would write me a check for $10,000 and then write, write him a check for $10,000. And we just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And we would accumulate like tons of miles. And then they stopped doing the checks. And we were convinced that it was because of us. Like, Amazing. In the Yukon, they're like those damn kids have figured out a loophole we got to stop it stupid yeah. canadians so it, it traveling actually, for free freaking canadians yeah so wait i, yeah, I want to so i want to uh, hear about your mom um, now how does how does post world war ii frugal mom from poland say you know what i'm freezing here in poland i should find an equally cold place in north america <laughs> yeah, yeah. i landed I go to... how does she yeah. land in a two thousand person town in the yukon she was a pediatric nurse um, in London. So she grew up in London and Pol in England and Poland. They went back and forth and they traveled quite a bit because my grandfather was in the Air Force, I believe. Um, so they traveled quite a bit, but she moved to Canada. She immigrated to Canada in her early 20s, I believe, as a nurse. And in Canada, you know, as a nurse, you would just get, here's where you're going. Here's a job. And off she went. And she felt in love with the north and she's a big skier she still runs she still does a lot of the ski patrol training she skis all the time even though she's almost 80 and she's awesome um she kills it on the skis still so she just fell in love with it and she met my dad and they ended up staying uh but it you know i think a lot of that adventure and travel and my mom has always been incredibly independent she's never uh she's very smart she speaks multiple languages um, and again, really well-traveled. Like I used to always watch Jeopardy with her growing up. And so I think a lot of that had to do with the way that my personality has kind of come together as an adult. So it was super fun, but I've always been responsible. I mean, even when I was out boozing and partying and playing in bands, I would never drink and drive. I was never, I was always responsible. So, um, and now that I'm a mom, 
even more so. <laughs> See, now now I know why you're partial to the Canadian nationalized health care because your mom was part of the system. And so every time I attack exactly. you about nationalized health care, I'm actually attacking yeah. your mom. You're right. Well, yeah, well, that. And then also, you know, it's so funny. So this is one of my biggest pet peeves in the U.S. is I've gone to so many dinner parties or events where someone finds out I'm Canadian and they usually will make a joke about the healthcare and then they'll try and educate me on what the healthcare system is like in Canada. And I'm like, have you ever been to a hospital or a doctor in Canada? No. Have you ever gotten medical care in Canada? No. Have you ever been to Canada? Most of the time, no. Like you don't know anything about the Canadian healthcare system. So um, I've had, I, again, being raised in the Canadian healthcare system has been amazing. I mean, our healthcare here is unbelievable. And surprisingly in the Yukon, it's even better. Uh, my dad had a hearing, my dad's been deaf for a very, very long time. And my dad is also very stubborn. So he would never go see a specialist, but uh, <laughs> we find talked and we kind of tricked him into going to see the specialist and they did a stapedectomy surgery on him which basically restored hearing in one of his ears he, he refuses to get the other one done but in the u.s that would have been a fifty thousand dollar surgery and it wouldn't have been covered because it, it wouldn't it would have been considered either experimental or uh, but it wouldn't have been covered there and then after i broke my back all the treatments i got in canada when i moved back to canada you know it's just the doctors here, there's no middleman, there's no infrastructure, there's no billing, there's no co-pays, there's no insurance policies that they have to check, there's no deductibles. So there's no, there's no bureaucracy in the middle of your healthcare. After I had my kids, I got probably 50 different statements in the mail. This billing was different. Oh, here's your copay for this. The blood work was sent here. And Every medical decision, it felt like had to do with the actual billing of it. Nothing to do with, okay, let's just get it done. So um, it's something I'm very grateful for now because my husband was hit by a car at the beginning of last year and he was pretty badly injured and he's, um, he might need surgery. We're not sure. We're trying to put it off as long as possible, but, you know, out of the insurance policy, which we had a fight for because her, her policy was horrible and all this, you know, 10,000 of that went to the medical bills. And, and it's, you see how the billing is done and it's just completely ridiculous. And that's not even a concern here. If you're sick in Canada, you're going to be taken care of, but you don't get better care because you're rich. And that's the difference. The difference in, is in the States, if you have, um, a really severe accident, you want to see the best doctor and you have $5,000 for one, you know, one appointment with him, you can pay it and you can go that it doesn't work like that in Canada. So, so everybody is on the same list and you're seen based on the need. So I had a friend that had a very bad spinal cancer thing. He was seen, he had surgery the next morning. So there's, there's weights for specific things, elective surgeries for sure. And it's funny because a lot of the stats you see about Canadians jumping the border and getting surgery in the States, a lot of that is boob jobs. Yeah, a lot of it's elective, elective surgery, it LASIK. It's elective surgeries, yeah. yeah. Things that aren't. Yeah. Uh, so so, yeah, what, so what are the trade-offs? And because... actually, LASIK is covered by the government here because it's less expensive for them than providing glasses. And so I, I got 
LASIK surgery quite a few years ago, and they paid, I think they paid half or 75% of it. So I know nothing about Canada, never been there, obviously never obtained healthcare there. And, but all, all systems have some trade-off, right? So what, what yeah. ha, you know, having lived in America for 20 years and done very well as a capitalist in the uh, real estate community, as you mentioned, and then moving back to a country that definitely leans more socialist, what, what are the pros and cons? Like, what are the trade-offs that you see that you're like, uh, I kind of wish Canada did this stuff the American way, and I kind of wish America did things the Canadian way on this. Like, what, what are the trade-offs that you see? I think, I guess probably choice of who you're seeing. Because if you're in a smaller area, you don't, so here you need usually a referral. So you'd see your doctor first, then you get referred to a specialist. So I think, you know, if, if I go to a doctor here and they say, oh, you need surgery, let's say, you know, I don't know, something's wrong. You need to have surgery. You need a hernia or surgery, whatever. Um, then they would send you, here's, we're going to send you to the specialist. You see the specialist and they'd say, here's your appointment with this doctor. Now I think you can try and, and change, but for the most part, you're, you're less, you're more limited with your choice. And then also you do go on a list. So I know hip replacements and knee replacements, the, the wait list can be long for those. And obviously with COVID, I'm sure they're even longer. So I would say a little bit less choice. Um, I think the Canadian doctors tend to be a little more conservative with treatments. So they're very, very strong into trying to pre-treat anything, right? So if you go to a doctor here and you're pre-diabetic, they will look at you and say, you need to get more exercise. You need to watch your diet. I'm not getting all this medication for you. You need to change your lifestyle. So they're very more proactive, I would say, about lifestyle, about health. You hear a lot about mental health here. Um, I've been bombarded by ads since I've come home. Call this number if you have mental health issues. So I think that's something that's very, very good here. But I think the waits are a little bit longer. But you can't go to a doctor here and say, I want this. I mean, it really comes down to the doctor. Whereas in the States, I feel like if you ask for something, if you have the money, you'll get it. Yeah. No matter it, what it is, no it, matter what the treatment is. Is there like a parallel path or a different track you can take where, you know, we'll use your father since you mentioned he's elderly. He needs a hip replacement. And you mentioned the, the hip replacement or the knee replacement surgery, you know, wait list is longer. Could he say, hey, move me to the front of the line. I'll pay $5,000. Is that even an option? Or is that no. when you see people jump the border to America and be no. like, here's my five grand. Replace no. my knee right now. That, yeah. That would be the only way. You'd, you'd go to the States then. And, and if you wanted to jump the line. And we do have, we've had like professional athletes or something that have flown to other countries and just paid. Because you can't. It doesn't matter. They don't care if you're a professional athlete. They don't care if you have $2 million you're not going to jump the line. It's based on need. Right. Um, so it's, it is a very different system, but having said that, so, so when my husband was hit by the car, he couldn't go back to his job because his job had a lot of physical labor in it. So he wasn't able to go back and we were able to stay on his plan for a while. And then we went to Cobra, but his health insurance was about to be, it was, it's canceled. So uh, we, I realized that for us to have kind of decent health care where the co-pays and deductibles weren't insane would be about $2,000 a month yep. for a family, which means that I'm working even more than I was. My kids are stuck at home. It's COVID. They don't have school. They don't have play dates. They don't have a normal life. My oldest son is a total empath. 
and he takes on energy like like crazy. So if someone's sad, he'll feel sad. I mean, he gets that from me and my mom is the same way. Um, he's very sensitive and kind and sweet. And yeah, and we were just like, if I'm losing, if we're losing healthcare in a pandemic, and then I have to work that much more, I have to work $48,000 more a year just to have mediocre healthcare in a pandemic. Like, why are we staying? It just... And that's the difference here. If you are sick and you lose your job, you do not need to worry about affording health care. Every single person has it. And I, I think that the issue with the states is it's the billing, right? It's the infrastructure. It's all the, the middle stuff. Because that doesn't actually go to the care. It's why you're charged $75 for an aspirin in the emergency room. I mean, right. it's just absolutely ridiculous. And I feel like people have been tricked a little bit into thinking that's kind of normal where it is not like that anywhere else in the world. Yeah. There's nowhere else in the world where you have a five minute birth and your insurance company is billed $45,000, which is what right. happened to me with my son. Right. I asked for an itemized bill that they sent to the insurance company and it was $45,000 and I didn't right. have an epidural. I didn't have anything. I mean, it just, that kind of thing just completely blows my mind. Yeah, so, it, it yeah. is crazy. I, I've got a friend of mine who's very libertarian, and uh, no, no, I get it. Um, I, I got a friend of mine who's like a hardcore libertarian, and more as a thought experiment, experiment because he had, um, he had a, a health insurance, but he like twisted his knee really bad playing basketball. He's like, you know what? I'm just gonna play this game. So he called around. And he's like, how much for an MRI? And they're like, well, what insurance do you have? He's like, oh, just assume I don't have insurance. So, you know, he called like five different places and they gave him five different prices. And then he called back and he said, well, I need to come in right now. I'll pay cash. And then the price went to like 50% of what they originally quoted him. And then he went in and he used his insurance and the price was like 400% what they had originally quoted him because they know they're going to insure, they're going to uh, bill the insurance company, which then the insurance company is going to push back and ask for a 50% discount. And it's just this whole weird fucked up house of cards. Like, yeah. look, I, I, because I don't want to wait around if I want a new hip, um, I don't know that I totally agree with socialized medicine, but I know the program we have right now in the States needs some serious, massive reform. And yeah. I, and I don't know, especially with our political infighting, I have no clue how we're ever going to get to some type of compromise. I and and that's the thing is I just don't think it can be fixed. It would have to be completely redone. When and here's another thing that I've noticed with with Canada and the doctors here is the government saves money when we're healthy here. They don't want you to get cancer. It costs them money. They don't want you to get diabetes. It costs them money. So you they really push preventative care. And you'll also see ads on the TV from the government saying things like eat healthy and go for a walk with your family. I know you're tired. I know it's been a long day, but why don't you take your kiddos for a 10 minute stroll? Like, and these are messages from the government, you know, but, but it really, especially with the pandemic, as we see, you know, the healthier you are, I mean, there's still so much we don't know about this virus, but you know, really a lot of health is prevention. Um, and that's really pushed here. And doctors are very conservative about prescribing medications, at least the ones I've been to here. So I've been to the doctor in Canada many times where they've said, it's a virus. I'm not giving you anything. You know, it's a virus. We're not giving meds for a virus, but here's, a, you know, a breathing treatment or here's something else you can do, or here's extra vitamins or something. So 
Um, whereas in the States, especially after I broke my back, um, I've had chronic back pain for many, many, many years, and it makes it hard to exercise and do things because I'll, you know, lift just a tiny bit too much or I too much on the elliptical and then my back would hurt for three weeks. And anytime I went to the doctor in the States, they wanted to give me pain medication every single time. I'd be like, Oh, here's some, and it was always really kind of hardcore pills and I'm not a big, uh, drug person. So not, not with pills, not meds. Um, they always made me feel really lethargic and weird. And so, but that's something else I've noticed here. They would be like, well, you just need to strengthen that core. And in the States I would notice like, you know, here's more, more pills and more medication and more, um, you know, and, and then they're billed for it and it's just a lot more money. So there's no incentive here to, to have people sick. There's absolutely yeah. no incentive. And that's why they spend so much money on cancer experimental, you know, the, the government funds a lot of research in Canada. So some, we had a, we had an, an online Facebook thing. I was sending you links to Canadian cause you were, you were saying it all the best. Wait, what were you saying? All the drugs are designed. Some of the America. best meds have come from the state. <laughs> yeah. 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 It is interesting. The whole but like, insulin. Insulin. I, I read yeah, that insulin article is Canadian. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I think when insulin came out, he decided just to give it away for free as far as the patent and everything. He didn't. Um, yeah. So, but the, the government puts a lot of money into cancer research, into drugs because it's in their best interest if they can cure cancer they'll save a lot of money so um yeah so so what is the what does the tax system look like because i don't even know do you guys have income tax do you have a vat of value added tax do you guys pay a lot of property taxes like obviously you know the the bill comes due somewhere um so what does the tax system look like yeah. in america versus canada since you've paid a lot of taxes in both <laughs> i have <laughs> i paid a lot yeah Less in the States than I would have thought. What's funny in the States is, you know, I have a really good accountant and I have an S corp. So my S corp, I'm on payroll on my S corp. And, you know, when people worry about, oh, well, if $500,000, you're going to pay way more taxes. Everybody knows they just have a corporation and put themselves on payroll. So nobody's making these massive salaries for the most part. Well, you know, uh, those of us so, over those of us over here on a W two are flipping you off in our head because <laughs> some of us has jobs where you're not able to open your own corporation, aka if you work in the mortgage world. So yes, we get pretty mad at those W two taxes. Wait, but are I digress. you serious? Yeah, mortgage people can. You're a W two. Yeah, yeah, because um, if you do FHA loans and you're an individual mortgage producer, the government wants their money. So back in 2009, as part of the crash, oh they took all the mortgage people off of 1099s. Now, there, there is some loopholes if you're bro a broker and you own the brokerage company. But if you're an employee of okay. Wells Fargo, Movement Mortgage, whatever, you are an employee on your W-2. So the, the, oh, wow. The, the you people, guys get royally screwed. Then. Royally we screwed. laugh all of the way to our S-Corp meetings. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. So in Canada, there's more tax. So we have what's called GST, which is goods and services tax. That's a 5% tax on everything, on most things, any goods and services. Yeah. Okay. And then things like cigarettes and alcohol are taxed very highly because they um, think that it, obviously cigarettes and things are not as good for your health. So a pack of cigarettes in the Yukon is $20 whoa, whoa, or actually what? it might even be more now. A pack of cigarettes yeah. is 20, $25 in the Yukon. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. 
Well, that's because yeah, people. It's a lot. And alcohol is very expensive here. That's because people can like So die, a bottle of right? wine. People can die like driving yeah. in the cigarettes. A, I mean, bottle... <laughs> a bottle of wine that's $15 in Canada would be 25 here. I mean, $15 in California would be $25 here. So alcohol is a lot more expensive. And then as far as our uh, taxes here, there's way less write-offs. Um, and there's, you know, we definitely do pay higher taxes here. But if I added up all of my health care to cost, and like say I didn't get health care from my husband's job, let's say I was paying it, I think I would still come out ahead in Canada. I really do. And wages are quite high here as well. And then we get we get bonuses. So if you have children, you get um, you get a they call it a rebate check. I'm not really sure why it's called that, but you get you get payments from the government throughout the year. In the Yukon, we get a Northern Living Allowance where the government actually pays us to live here because they're like, it's so freaking cold. The government has a program here wait, where wait, if wait, wait, parent, wait, 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 wait. if you put money- Back up, back up. Yeah. If you, if you choose to live in BFE Canada, AKA the Yukon, they pay you a stipend. Effectively, it's like a freezing your ass off stipend. Yeah. Okay, how much, you yeah, gotta tell me how like much this is. How much? How much do you get I paid? I actually really? don't know. I'll find out because okay. I I don't I don't know what it is, but I'll find out for you. Canada has the same system, and it's around three grand per year. Three grand per year mm -hmm. as uh, for living in the Yukon. I, I mean, yeah. I know that they have like a Wait, that, that's Alaska. I don't know. Oh, that's Alaska. About Canada. Oh, okay, so not not Canada. In Alaska, you get like three thousand a year from the oil companies or something as like a stipend or something. But um, Chris, you're gonna have to look this up. Look, look up what's the Canadian yeah, government spike uh, stipend. For living in the Yukon. Look for that the up, Yukon. Chris. It, it's um, called the Northern Living Allowance. Northern Living and Allowance. Then, yeah. And then, so in Canada, if you have children, if you put money in a bank account, they'll match it. And I believe it's up to $1,500 per child a year. Mm. So most parents take advantage of that. And then when the kids graduate from high school, there's money for post-secondary education. It's $11 per day. $11 per day, Northern Northern Living Allowance. So you're getting about four G's, four G's a person just to live in the BFE cold. Yeah. Doesn't seem worth awesome. it. Doesn't seem worth it. Live in the dream. Four live in the dream. $4,000 barely going to cover your sweatshirt cost if you're living in right. negative 30 degrees. But the child the education credit is pretty amazing. I mean, when you think, you know, and anytime and a lot of parents that don't have a lot of money, they'll tell their family instead of buying my kids Christmas presents or birthday presents, can you just put the money in this account and then it's matched by the government? So it's actually a pretty, I think it's a really cool thing. That's, um, it's so yeah. funny. You and know. wages are quite high here. I mean, they're, they're pretty high. Like you, I don't think there's any jobs probably in the Yukon that pay under, I, I wouldn't think any, anything under 15, but probably quite a bit higher. Do they have a minimum wage in Canada or is it kind of just uh, culturally yeah. that wages are high? I don't know what it is anymore though. I've only, been here since August now, so I'm not sure, you know, and I've been gone for 20 years, so I don't know what it is, but yeah, there's, and, and every um, province and territory in Canada has a different minimum wage. So in, in the big town that you're in where there's 35,000 people, I feel like you're so personable. You could, you could literally get to know all 35,000 people during your lifetime. So how does real estate work up there? Like, do you just get a tip, you know, at the local drugstore that Bill wants to sell a house and you know that Tommy <laughs> is looking for a house? Like, there can't be that much velocity of transactions, right? You talk about the population growing, you know, 25% in the last 10 years. What's real estate like up there? 
there's, I think there's about 30 real estate agents here. I can't remember. And it seems like most of them are doing very well and very busy. So surprisingly, the house prices have gone bananas here because there's a lot of people that have moved and there's not a lot of inventory. So houses here are getting multiple offers, selling above ask. Um, and the agents are doing very good business. I mean, I would say probably even more so than the top Los Angeles agents. Amazing. Maybe not the like mega million dollar agents, but right, right. let's say a pretty good high end, you know, Northeast LA agent would probably be comparable to an agent here on what they make, I would say. And what are so they're um, doing really well and they're busy. What are properties selling for up there in the North Pole? So their house just sold down the street from us for six, like seven. So I'd say six fifty to seven for a three bedroom. Let's say I don't know. Well, and this is Canadian dollars, so it would be about five fifty American, a little over five maybe. Yeah, wow. five fifty I would say. So the house prices, but that's gone up a lot. I mean, the houses have gone up probably 200,000 in equity in the last three or four years. Wow. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So real estate's actually quite expensive here. Um, but that's recent. I mean, that's a new thing. It wasn't so crazy a couple of years ago. And we bought our house are five those, years ago. Are those Americans moving to Canada or are these Canadians moving out of, you know, the only big cities I know in Canada are Montreal and Quebec. So I, I don't know, like where, where yeah. are the people coming from that are driving up the prices? Surprisingly, there's a big French community here. So I do think people are moving here from Quebec um, down South. There's lots of, there seems to be quite a bit of work and people just like a more, simple way of living as far as if I need to go to the bank and the post office and get groceries and go pick up my kids, that will take me 35 minutes. <laughs> right. You're not sitting on the 405 you know, like, for three hours. Yeah. Yeah. If I need to go to the airport here, it would be 15, 10 minutes, you know, and oh. the LAX is an hour and a half. And it's funny because I was joking the other day at my office with some of the other realtors about so how many houses have you shown? Like, what's the maximum number of houses you've shown in a day? And people are like, oh, hell, we could show 25, 30 houses in a day and still that, you know, still have time for lunch. And in LA, I feel like the max really is like, after five houses, you're pretty tired because yeah. it just takes so long to get everywhere. So, but the agents, you know, they do really good business here. They're super busy. They're really smart and sharp and knowledgeable and um, most of the agents that are good and successful have been doing it for 20 30 years and they know everybody and it's a lot of repeat business nice and um you know in california uh, at least where you and i are familiar with real estate the average real estate contract is six percent maybe in a competitive market four and a half or five kind of split between the buyer and the seller do they have the same type of agreement in Canada where the seller pays like a flat fee and then the agent split it? Or how does the economics work in yeah, Canadian real estate? This, the seller pays, but it's kind of weird here. So for the first 150,000, it's a certain amount. Could be five, could be six, could be seven. And then after that, it goes to a different amount and that's split between the two sides. So it's negotiable just like any other commission. But yeah, I, I was always kind of, I'm, I'm still kind of confused about why not just a flat amount instead of the first 150 at a certain, and I, I guess maybe it's 
because with lower price properties, it makes it worth doing all the work, you know, if it's a land deal or something. But at that point, I'm like, well, you could just charge a different amount for land then. So I'm not really sure, but it's the commissions are less. Um, However, there's lawyers involved in transactions here. So there's, and there's way less paperwork. I mean, every other day that I open our purchase agreement, there's another freaking disclosure in California. Oh yeah. Everybody likes to sue everybody. You know, Oh my God. And here our purchase agreement is one page and it's in big font (laughs) and there's no disclosures here. There's none unless you're, you own your property and you want to disclose it, but there's no disclosures. There's no bed bug disclosures. There's no smoke detector disclosures. There's no flood and fire hazard and there's no disclosures. It's actually very refreshing. And I was talking to the owner of the brokerage I'm working at in the Yukon here today and we were just comparing notes on like like what our paperwork looks like as like it is actually really nice to be here la is just so litigious and the amount of paperwork is is mind-numbing yeah i remember uh, i started working at washington mutual and doing loans at the end of 2000 and i started out by doing a lot of second mortgages home equity line of credits and things like that and when i started i think the entire closing document was 15 pages you had to to notarize a deed that went down to the county, you had to sign like a seven page, basically like a credit card disclosure. Nobody ever read it. And then you had to send like one document to the IRS. And by the time Washington Mutual went under, I think in 2008, 2009, that same, less than 10 years, that same second mortgage package was like 72 documents. And it was just a beast. Oh and it was all God. because of, it was all because of different, you know, lawsuits and different disclosures and different this. And now, you know, these poor people, they signed a set of loan disclosures and it's a hundred pages. It's like, nobody's reading that shit. Give me a break. No, I remember when I bought my house, I sat down and read every single piece of paper and everything. And it drove the escrow company insane. She kept coming to the room and being like, I can just summarize. And I'm like, no, I will saw, I will read every single, you know, cause it was 2008 and I was terrified about what had happened in the, in the entire housing crisis and everything. So I read every single document. Some of them I didn't really understand, especially the loan stuff, but um, yeah, it was just kind of funny. So how about you with the loans? I mean, you've done it for so long. Are you, and, and you're doing so many like podcasts and I know you love talking, you love being in front of people. Are you kind of slowing down with the mortgage are you trying to build up a team or what's your what's your end goal for for everything so i've decided the key to life is just having amazing partners so in the loan business i have a, a partner named ann who does all the logistics like i i talk to the clients i talk to the realtors i take the challenging difficult phone calls especially if somebody's disgruntled because that's not ann's wheelhouse but as far as building what do you the mean loan, the appraisal came in fifty thousand dollars this is my dream house. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, can I just say real quick, this is this is a jab against realtors. Okay, realtors cannot advertise on their Instagram all day, every day, that they're selling every single property at the absolute top of the market. You know, the same realtor, and I would use his name because we're good friends, but I don't want to bust his balls too much. Every single one of his Instagram posts is like, sold at the top of the market, sold 100,000 over asking, sold 150,000 over asking. And then the appraisal comes in low and he's like, I've never had an appraisal come in low. I'm like, you do realize if your house is the most expensive house in the market and you're selling 150 over asking, 
intrinsically, that means that there's no comparable properties for the appraisal. Like that's actually what you're advertising is that this property will not appraise. So yeah, those, those challenging calls, I take all those. But to answer your question, you know, I've got a great partner in the, um, in the mortgage business. Uh, I do coach loan officers, which is funny because I put about two hours of content together every uh, week on Sunday for my coaching clients. And then my assistant shoots that out throughout the week. So it looks like I'm coaching all week long, but I really just took two hours Sunday morning when my kids are still asleep and put together all the content. And then on the podcast, you know, this is my Thursday night, Friday night passion project after the kids go to bed. And I've got an, an awesome assistant here in that business, Chris. So it's like, yeah, I mean, technically, I guess I'm running three businesses, but I'm still doing 50 hours a week in mortgage and just had my best year ever in 2020. Thank you, Trump and Biden, for Congrats. fighting. The, the fact that Trump and Biden continued to fight all year and just kept dropping the interest rates lower and lower, it was very good for business. So, um, yeah, I think yeah. much like you building a team and still running, you know, Los Angeles real estate from the Yukon, which I don't even know how that's possible, but you're doing it. Um, you know, it's all about, it's all about having a great team, right? I mean, you have, you have great people. I have great you people realize. Yeah. It's, it's leveraging, right. And realizing what you're good at and it's the stuff that you love and is fun for you is the stuff that you're going to be good at. For me, I'm good at being around people and talking and I know what I'm not good at, which I'm not good at spreadsheets and logistical things and making sure that I'm constantly in contact every single week um with whatever like the logistic the logistics and the website stuff and the maintenance stuff i know that's not what i'm good at and i'm definitely not passionate about it so once you start outsourcing the things you don't want to do and you keep putting off but they get done that's when you become successful yeah it's like the the really the key is and it's funny it's it's so simple but it's so true and it's something that i've kind of discovered in the last couple of years i fought getting an assistant for so long because i thought it doesn't make any sense i'm going to be paying something someone to do stuff that i just can do myself and then the second i think the first week she came on she sucked all the emails out of my you know four years of emails put them all in a spreadsheet and was like Hey, here's clients that called you in January and they said they're going to put off their search for two months. Have you contacted them? It's been two months. And I'd be like, oh, shit, no, I have not. But, you know, and then I would call and they'd be like, oh, it's funny you called. We're actually ready to start looking now. So it's just the follow up, yep. right? And, and having systems, just having systems. I never had systems and I'm really good with multitasking, but those things I am not good at. And, um, you know, I get a call and somebody would, say, Hey, you know, we, yeah, we're thinking of selling. Okay. Well, we'll call you in a couple months and I would never follow up with them. And I, I realized after a couple of years, cause I would, I wouldn't follow up cause I didn't want to, because I I'd get so busy with the business I had in hand. And then I'd have a bunch of escrows close and then I would look for clients again. And then I realized I just need to stop being so, so feast or famine and be more consistent. And I got my assistant and and it's like she has paid for herself times a thousand, not only for just helping continue the business just by the follow-up, but also I have so much more time because she does things that make my life easier, all the logistical things that whether it's, you know, going to the post office to do something or mailing things out or even just reminders, just touching and stuff like the website maintenance and the pictures and putting up the new listings. I mean, that stuff is really time consuming. 
Yeah. So if you're not dealing and you can't do it in your car and how often are we not in our flipping car, especially in Los Angeles, like driving right. around showing things and stuck in traffic and you're on the phone with clients and everything, but are you going to get home and update that the listing that you had on the market is now an escrow? Yep. You know, where she took care of a lot of that stuff and that was huge. And then helping with the podcast too. But yeah, that was, that was something I wish I'd done earlier was leverage, outsource and leverage. And it doesn't mean, you know, I'm a bit of a control freak. It doesn't mean that things aren't, you just have to get the right person, the right team. Totally. You know, it's funny. I won't, uh, I won't use his name just in case this podcast becomes a big deal sometime, but a uh, friend, <laughs> friend of a friend was a, uh, I don't know, like a wholesale rep for a uh, fitness vitamin company in Arizona. And so he was driving around, you know, selling to GNC, selling to these gyms and stuff, making a really good living at like 150 grand a year, right? More money than he thought he'd ever make. And he got a DUI. And um, he was mortified. And his boss said, hey, you know, 80% of your job is driving from store to store to store. If you have a license, I have to let you go. And he said, look, man, th this is the most important thing I've ever done in my life. I'm sorry I fucked up. It won't happen again. Let me hire my cousin. You know, he'll be my driver. He'll be full-time. I'll show you his license, his uh, insurance. He'll be my driver. Even if I have to pay him $50,000 a year, I'll still make 100 Just let me keep the job. So they did. And the next year, he made $450,000 because what ended up happening is his cousin driving him around effectively became his personal assistant and then everything he meant to do, like send the thank you card to the gym that he was just at, all of a sudden, all that stuff became routine because he was in the passenger seat instead of the driver's seat. And he was able to do all the follow-up stuff that he said he was going to do. And then when he was in pitching product, his cousin, who was sitting in the car, would sit there and answer emails for him and do all the assistant work because what else is he going to do? You know, he's, he's sitting in the car for an hour when, when the boss is pitching the products. And he saw a 3x increase in his business, and he's never left that. So now he's got a driver, he's got a personal assistant, he's got a, a business assistant. You know, he's probably got $200,000 worth of overhead, but now he's making a million dollars selling, you know, vitamins. And, and, and it's all because he was forced through something that was very embarrassing to him, aka getting a DUI. He was forced to leverage somebody and get an assistant because it was the only way to keep his job. And yeah. it's like, I don't want anybody to have to go that far and get a DUI uh, in order to uh, see the light of getting an assistant. But you're right, man. Once you learn how to leverage other people and what their skills are, what a world of difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's really awesome. And then you also have a better quality of life. I mean, my second year, I became a top producer and I would stay up until two in the morning on my computer working message boards, anything I could throw out there that could potentially bring me business or looking at every single listing on the MLS, knowing all the comps, I would just be up and then I would crash. I would just fall asleep on the couch. And then my kids were, who were quite young at the time, cause I had a, a toddler and a newborn would be up at six 30 in the morning. I was averaging four hours of sleep a night. So I did very well my second year and I was very, I was really proud because I did work really hard, but quality of life, not so great when you're only getting four hours of sleep. And then you realize also that you're not the best mom you can be because you snap, you know, your kid spills something. You're like, ah, what the hell? Come on, you know, and you're not as patient. You're not taking care of yourself. You're not exercising. And you know, you just, it's, it's, not the best way to live. Yeah. So I, I also think there's a point where you can make unlimited amount 
amount of money, but if the unlimited amount of money is really digging into your quality of life, not worth it. I mean, I made a lot less last year. Last year would have been my less, my best year if I'd stayed in LA, hands down. Um, but I partnered up with a lot of agents. So once I left, I, I partnered up with a lot of agents and we split the commissions or I'd give them the majority because they were doing the majority of the work. And yeah, it would have been my best year, but for six months of the year, I was with my kids and we were jumping on a trampoline. Well, I wasn't jumping on a trampoline, let's be honest, but they were jumping on a trampoline or we were hanging out. And I was just so worried about the trauma from, from their lives completely stopping to, um, you know, just, just baking bread with them and hanging out and making dinners and chilling and I could have made hundreds of thousands of dollars last year, but it would have been at the cost probably of my kids' mental health. So there's a balance there too, right? It's not all about money. I mean, and you know, you have kids and with relationships, I mean, I tend to border on the workaholic side. So I, I have to be careful also with family that I, that's not coming at the expense of the family and I'd rather make less. And the pandemic's really brought that into perspective for me, I think. Yeah, you know, missing a ball game is is not as important as getting getting that deal. Like, I'd rather be at the ball game. Yeah. So. And do Do you think you know because everybody has their anger around COVID or their conspiracy theory or their frustration with how the government's handling things? You know, me maybe more than others. Um, but do you think that's the silver lining of all this shit? Is people are learning like, oh, I can cook I at home and eat some good food, and I need to spend more time with my kids, and you know, all of a sudden, community and yeah. who's in your bubble per se. That shit really matters. Yeah. I do think there's a different perspective with kids. I, I think, you know, it's funny because I, I just think that nobody's wrapped their head around the thing that the pandemic is such a crazy anomaly. Nothing like this has happened in the last hundred years. Nothing. There has never been a time where almost half a million people have died in a year from one virus. Never. I mean, except for even the Spanish flu. In the Spanish flu, 600,000 Americans died, right? We're almost at half a million. This might surpass how many Americans died in the Spanish flu. And we're living in a much different time with, with medications and treatments. So it's such an anomaly. It's something that has never happened in our lifetime. It's never happened in our parents' lifetime. And I think we have no idea what it is yet. We can't even wrap our heads around what it is. And and everybody's an expert, what we should have done, what we shouldn't have done, what the government should have done, what they shouldn't have done. But really, there's no right answer. I mean, we still don't know so much about this virus. We don't know the long-term effects. We don't know the long-term effects of our kids' mental health now from everything being shut down. We don't understand, you know, why are people having strokes a month after they've had this virus? We don't understand... Um, what it really means and how it's going to permanently change our life. Is it going to be something that's actually with us for many, many years? You know, it, I just don't think we understand yet. And I think that is the silver lining that parents, and, and it has been super hard as well. And, you know, I'm lucky I have a partner. I have a partner that wasn't able to work. Um, so he was able to help with the kids while I was working, but I think, people have spent more time with their kids this year than any other year ever. And that can also be very, very hard. I mean, I can't imagine being a single mom with having trouble paying rent, not being able to work, having two or three kids, um, 
health issues, you know, all that stuff. I mean, I'm sure it's been extremely challenging, but I've spent more time with my kids other than, you know, when they were born than I ever have. And I know we're much, we're, I mean, we've always been very close, but it's, it's something really special. And they'll probably look back on this year as being a really happy year of going skiing with mom and getting to watch movies with mom and, and dad. And um, so I think we, but, but again, we've been really lucky. You know, I got to jump in an airplane with my kids and my family and move to another country and not very many people have that option. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, you, but you I, s- I still just don't think we can wrap our heads around what it all means yet. Well, well, you and... said something that you said something that I think is really missing from the American conversation, which is the the, the simple words "I don't know." You know, you and I, right. are, you and I are both very opinionated. We've had some heated discussions on Facebook, but <laughs> you know, we're cordial about it. And a lot of times, you and I end yeah. the conversation with. Who the fuck knows? Let's have a beer or, you know, whatever. Cause, right, but, but right, right. it's, it's very hard for Americans because we're taking our cues from politicians on both sides who, who yeah. both seem to have to have all the answers all the time and know everything. It's like, you know, how enlightening would it be to have Biden or Trump or insert any politician be like, hey, man, we don't really know. We're doing the best we can. I'll get back to you in three weeks when we have yeah. more information. I haven't yeah. heard that out of a politician left, right, or center in fucking right. 20 years. Right. We hear that a lot here and we actually do in Canada. So we have our health experts and we hear a lot of, you know, we just don't know. We just don't understand this yet. This is what we know so far, but we really don't know. Like, I think, um, yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, it's so much bigger than us. And it's funny because when it was happening and I personally knew people that had been affected by it, by COVID, I, was getting so angry at people that would say like, it's made up. It's no worse than the flu. It's just blah, 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 blah. It's, and I think now almost everybody's come to the side of, Oh no, it's fucking real. Cause I know someone that's been sick. I know someone that's parents were in the hospital. I mean, there's once almost a half a million people have had COVID, you know, it's a real thing, but I couldn't wrap my head around. Why are people like, why are you so stupid? How do you realize it? How do you not know it's a real thing? And then I realized what people do for self-protection is when things are scary, they say it's not real. So if you're at home and you hear a weird noise and you're like, oh, oh no, no, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's my imagination. It's not real. And it's a self-preservation method. And once I realized that the people that were so scared of what it could be, they pretend it's not real and then it makes them feel safer. And once I realized that, I was like, okay, it's a, it's a psychological preservation for their mental health, mm-hmm. where if you pretend it's not real, you're not going to be so scary. It's not going to be so scary. Yeah. And that made me actually feel better about it. Cause I just don't think anybody now can pretend it's not a real thing. Yeah. And it's no, not I, serious. I, I mean, maybe when 40,000 people were, were dying, but I don't think anybody can say it's like the flu now. I mean, I think, I think we surpassed that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I I'd like to get your you know more left leaning take and then maybe just a Canadian take. Uh, a, a politician that I really enjoy listening to his podcast is Dan Crenshaw. He's a junior um, congressman from uh, Texas, ex Navy SEAL guy. You would is probably he the know military guy, the Navy SEAL. Yes, yeah. yeah. Eye patch. He has an eye patch. Everybody knows him because he had an eye patch. Um, but you know the guy. He's very well spoken. Super well spoken. He was like he was raised in Central America because his father worked for an oil company. 
and then he um, he did the whole Navy SEAL thing. And then I think he, he went to an Ivy League, like Harvard or something, on the GI Bill, and now he's a congress. Very, very well-spoken. And one of the things that he's been talking a lot about on his podcast is that you know, I, he, he believes everything is real. He believes that COVID, you know, presents a, a real risk and obviously a huge, huge fatality problem for a lot of people, especially you mentioned earlier, people that are less healthy. But he's been talking a lot about, hey, I think the reason this has kind of fallen down party lines is because if you just look at the brain makeup of, we'll call it conservative versus progressive, um, they just tend to evaluate risk differently. So maybe you get somebody who's more progressive and somebody who's more conservative or Republican or however you want to you know, classify that. And they might both have the same understanding of the disease, but they just evaluate risk differently. And he was you know, citing a couple of studies where like more conservative people tend to uh, go towards jobs that are more dangerous, police, military, you know, oil workers, stuff like that. And, you know, more progressive mm. people tend to skew to professions that are more, you mentioned empath, like your son, you know, uh, education, healthcare, things of that nature. So I, I've really been trying to think about maybe this is just like our brains are wired differently on how we evaluate risk and that's showing up politically. So I don't know. I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm trying to think through this topic and I'm wondering if you have any thought process on this because I know you know some realtors that you and I both know that are more progressive are like I'm staying in my bubble I'm not going to a house I'm wearing two masks this shit is terrifying me and I'm kind of looking at them being like well you're a really healthy 35 year old like even if you get it you're probably going to be okay and then I'm looking at some of my conservative friends that are like fuck it I'm not wearing a mask I'm going everywhere it's my freedom and I'm like well you're kind of fat and you have diabetes. Like <laughs> you should be a little bit more careful. So I'm, I'm just wondering if it comes down to like maybe Americans versus Canadians or left versus right. Maybe our brains are just wired differently on how we evaluate risk. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to think through I, this topic. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. I think a lot of why the pandemic became a, a political thing is how it started. You know, I think like in Canada, it doesn't feel political here at all. You don't have a politician. It, it really doesn't. I mean, it's it's also a different mentality here. So the difference I've noticed between Canada and the U.S. is Canada is very, um, very focused on the community as a whole, the greater good. So it's funny because I see this at my kids' school all the time and they'll say, you know, it's all about, well, what you does affect the rest, affects the rest of the class. So as a good citizen, this is why we'd like you to behave this way, because what you do affects other people. And that's drilled into you as a child here. And it's just part of our culture. We're very uh, wholly responsible. And then in the States, I feel like it's more of your own uh, responsibility. So it's about you. It's about your family. How are you going to protect yourself? How are you going to protect your family? What's best for you? What's best for your family? Where in Canada, what's best for everybody? And I think that's the different thing. So here they'll say, the health experts will say, listen, I know it sucks to wear a mask. I know it's uncomfortable. I know you don't want to do it. But if you wear a mask, that could protect the people around you from getting sick. And it's really important. We have a lot of seniors in our community. We really want to protect our seniors. So I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's, you know, it's hard. But if we all do it, you know, the seniors and people around can be protective. And Canadians will go, hmm, I guess that makes sense. And what's the worst that can happen if we wear masks? 
you know, it's not going to make things worse. So, okay, let's do it. Whereas I feel like, you know, in this, in the States and, and I do feel, I do feel like the way the pandemic started by saying it's not real, by saying it's going to be gone. It's not such a big deal. So you do have half of the, you know, the political landscape thinking that the other side is trying to trick them, that it's not real. And fair enough. I mean, there've been so many things over the years, killer bees are coming and this is happening. And there is a lot of fear driven through the news for everything in the States. So fair enough. And again, nothing like this has ever happened before. So I think the tone started early. I think if Donald Trump would have come out and said, guys, this is serious. This is something we don't know that much about. This is really scary. The, the numbers that I've been, so because apparently he sat in a room and someone came in and said, if you don't do something, 2 million people will die of this virus. You know, that he was given, and he even said that in interviews, he was giving huge numbers of casualties and deaths and, and it was really scary. And I just think he took the wrong approach by coming out and saying, it's not that bad and whatever the reason for that. And again, it, he might've been doing the same thing where if he pretends it's not as big of a deal as it is, then it's not so scary. Yeah. And then, and so when you start at that level, when, when two sides are against each other and, and one side is saying the other side is trying to trick you, it's not really that bad. That 50% will never believe what's actually happening. And I, right. and I really truly think, I don't think a lot of the virus spread could have been protected. I don't think locking things down for an entire year will ever help. And you don't, you can't have 50% of the people doing one thing and 50% doing another and have any effect. Right. You know, I mean, you can't lock down a city and have a bunch of people still partying and doing things and expect anything good to come out of that. Right. I mean, not to mention a city in Los Angeles, you are fucked. There are how many people live in LA? 13 how million, many million, 11 million, something like that. Yeah. You go into a Costco and you're around hundreds and well, thousands in a day of people's germs in a co in one Costco. I mean, there's just, it, it can't be, it's, it's an uncontrollable virus that's airborne. I really do wish that they would have come out and said it was airborne a lot sooner Yeah. because I think people had false security about the fact that they could wash their hands and it would be okay. I mean, Christ, Mike Pence talking about washing his hand, Jackie Goldberg, you know, our um, LAUSD rep, we get a cyber call from her every single day saying to wash your hands. And I used to get so annoyed because I'm like, it's freaking airborne. Why are they not saying it's not airborne? It's spread through the air. Washing your hands is not going to do that much. You know, if you're in a car right. with someone that has it, you're going to get it. So so that's the politics that really pisses me off because I think, I think that really started it. The tone of how it started, if he would have come out and said the, our, my health experts are saying this is really serious. And whether you're Republican, whether you're Democrat, we really need to trust the fact that this is scary. We don't know that much about it to be conservative. I think it would be smart for us to stop you know, maybe we all wear masks. You know, some of the, um, was it Taiwan that did really well with, with the spread? Um, and, and there are ways, like in the Yukon, it's so tiny and small, but the contact tracing and the quarantine and all that, you know, it, it did work. 
And then if you stall the virus enough that you can actually vaccinate quite a large percent of the population. But I just, I, again, I just think there's no right answers to this virus. Yeah. I think locking down freaking sucks. I think it's going to cause issues with mental health. I think kids are really hurting being out of school yeah. and it's really, really awful for them at the same time. Guess what else? was really awful your teacher freaking dying of covid right. so like there's no right answers there's not we right. don't know and, yeah. and it's not like black or white like we should open up we should shut down there's there's literally no right answer to this yeah yeah you know i was kind of willing uh, trump gavin newsom you know it, living in los angeles we get the two the two extremes over the last four years we have a very conservative president who donald trump's like the biggest anomaly to me because Donald Trump, the man, the person who tweets, the, the, the leader of the free world, I hate that man. But I also liked some of the policies enact, he enacted, right? Like some of the stuff that he believed in on a policy front, I'm like, oh, yeah, I agree with that. That's kind of a more traditional conservative or libertarian viewpoint. So he's like, he gives me like, like PTSD just thinking about like, oh, I kind of agree with that fucking policy. God damn it. Why did you have to tweet that, you asshole? You know, and so he like, right, he's, right. he's very frustrating to me. Um, but one of the things that I hate about government, and I don't know if this is the same in, in Canada as it is in the U.S., it seems maybe not as much, is just being realistic about human nature, right? So it sounds like what they're doing in Canada is they're appealing to human nature and the greater good. Like, hey, guys, might be uncomfortable. We don't know a lot about this, but wear a mask. You might save grandma. We're not trying to take away your personal freedoms. Whereas right. I feel like in America – we don't do a good job at looking at the human nature. And I always go back to this cigarette tax in California and I'm going to, somebody will fact check me and I'll get the numbers all wrong. But I remember in LA city, I'll just use round numbers and they're going to be wrong, but whatever LA city, LA County said, okay, well we're going to, we're going to tax cigarette packs at an extra dollar a pack. And that's going to create a billion dollars in revenue over the next 10 years. So we'll go ahead and spend that billion dollars now. Cause we know the money is coming. Well, guess what? When you don't factor in human nature, if you tax cigarettes at a dollar extra a pack, you only end up collecting $800 million instead of a billion dollars in tax revenue because human nature changes when you put a policy in. And I'm like, these are people that are way smarter than me. I'm basically a high school dropout. How can you guys not realize to like factor in what's going to happen with human nature? So to your point, right. going full circle about the COVID, I would have had so much respect if they would have been like, hey, guys, everybody stock up. Every single business in California is closed for two weeks. No Costco, no essential services, yeah. no school, no everything. We're going to try to like nip this thing in the bud and let's just do yeah. it right for two weeks and let's have some shared experience. Instead, I feel like all the policies of the federal government and the state government for the last year has been like, well, let's kind of be half pregnant. Yeah. You can go to restaurants, yeah. but yeah. not really. And yeah. you can go to Costco, but you can't go to church. And you can go to, you know, yeah. you can go to the dispensary because weed's an essential service, but you can't go to an AA meeting because that's dangerous. I'm like, are you guys fucking high? Like, and Pasadena is fully open for restaurants, but, but, you know, you go over to Northeast LA and everything's like, like to me, that's the thing. It was so inconsistent consistent right and then i i was really pissed at gavin newsom for going to freaking dinner at french laundry i'm like come on right like common sense even if you want to go you don't because you know that's freaking stupid um yeah i just with the shutdowns i have i have super mixed feelings about it because i just don't think 
maybe if we'd started wearing masks earlier, maybe things have could have been more opened up, but there's just such a giant amount of people. And we have such multi, you know, multi families living in the same house where um, there's so much exposure risk. And then the countries that do open up, they end up having to shut back down again, right? right. Sweden opened up and then they, their numbers went crazy. So they had to start shutting things down. So but then opening things up half and then shutting them down half and then some things open and some not it's it's so confusing to me it's like i have friends that i have a sex therapist friend who's been vaccinated but like a teacher has you know it's just like i don't understand i don't understand a lot of the policies and i don't i don't understand the fix for shutting down and opening up well, in fairness, I, I need sex way more. Worked, I need sex way more than I need yeah. school. So I'm okay with your sex therapist getting vaccinated <laughs> before the teacher, but probably not good for my kids. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. Touche. But I'm just like, how do they decide? Like, this is so confusing to me. I, I, yeah, I have mixed feelings about, I was very upset when the school shut because they shut down really early. And I was really upset because I knew my kids were so scared and so confused and um, and also selfish reasons. I wanted them to be in school so I could work. And, and then it dragged on and on and on and on. And I have so many feelings about LAUSD. I think LAUSD is, I think it's criminal to have a school district with 500,000 kids in it and a $5 billion budget under one umbrella. I think it's absolutely criminal. And I think some of the, the teachers could have had, if it wasn't LAUSD, the schools could have had one day a week where the teacher is there and the kids are outside and whether they're sitting with masks or something, just something, you know? And I feel like, I don't know, it's just such a mess. I was really disappointed in LASD. The distance learning was a complete joke. You know, I had my seven-year-old who was six at the time, who he went from seeing his friends every single day to staring staring at an iPad where there was zero live interaction from his teacher, none. She wouldn't, because she didn't have to as LASD. And, you know, it's a six-year-old who's stopped seeing, and the parents would try and organize like a Zoom session once a week, just so our kids could see other kids. Mm -hmm. And it was such a failure. And, you know, it's like, if the schools can't control a lice outbreak, you know, are they really going to be able to control a pandemic? I don't think so. You know, yeah. so it's just, there's just so much failure in California. I just, there's so much money funneling into LAUSD where over 50% of the $5 billion budget goes to pensions and healthcare for administration and teachers. And obviously teachers should have pensions and healthcare, but how is it, how does that make any sense that that's the huge bulk of our education budget? Like that just blows my mind because in Canada, the government isn't spending their budget on teacher health care you know it's not everybody has health care it's not part of the budget it's just i don't know the whole thing i could go on and on and on but yeah i i don't think opening everything up and not closing anything down i think there would have been a lot of deaths i think a lot of people would have died and and, and to the point you know i do hear a lot of people saying well 99 percent, there's no I have friends that are healthy and young and fit that have had COVID and they are not normal. They're not back to normal right? and permanent lung damage. And they've lost completely lost their taste of smell and, um, and taste and months later still don't have it back. And what does that mean five years from now? Right. right? What does that mean? 10 years from now? 
Yeah. And they're seeing mental health issues in people that had COVID five or six months ago. So there's just so much we don't know. And I don't think it's a live or die thing. But yeah, I'm really conflicted about opening up and closing down. But I don't think opening half up and closing down half up and being super inconsistent makes any sense. Yeah. I think potentially shutting everything down for two weeks and that's it. But again, people have to actually do it. And a lot of people won't. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, I mean, no good it, it's it's the trade-off of living in still that kind of American frontier attitude, right? Of like, I take care of myself, maybe my family, and that's kind of where it stops. There's some there's some great benefits of that. You know, there's some great entrepreneurial right. spirit. There's people come here to be drummers and actors and everything else. But there's there's definitely a downside in the trade-off. You know, what I'm what I'm really worried about on the political front and the optics of this is you know, I, I feel very blessed that my wife and I do very well. And early on, we kind of made a decision. It's like, well, we evaluated what we feel like we could evaluate as, you know, parents for the health risk. So we put our kids in Montessori. They're very careful. No parents in there. Eight kids for class. And so, you know, I'm blessed that we have the money to basically pay for private daycare, quote unquote, or right. private, private education. And there's a bunch of private schools in wealthy areas that have gotten waivers to stay open and wealthier parents can afford tutors. So my concern is, is five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the wealthy families that were able to continue some semblance of education, guess what? Their kids are just going to do better yeah. in life than the poor and, kids that can do that. And now we're just yeah. going to stretch out that income gap even more. Yeah. That's always been the way though. I think like there's one of the most wealthy uh, private schools in Los Angeles in Northern North Hollywood their teachers somehow got vaccines when none of the other schools did. And it's like, hmm, isn't that interesting? You know, but it's, that's always the way, right? It's always the, um, and it's something that I've been very aware of, you know, the idea of white privilege where some people think it's not a thing, but it is a thing, right? It's, it's a thing that I, my kids have the option for their mom to just, when they see that their mental health is struggling to pick them up and move to another country in a nice house where the bills are paid and they can go to a school, you know, like my kids had so much anxiety that my, my nine-year-old who's the empath, who's very, very, very sensitive and really sweet and just has such a kind heart. And we would leave the house and he would see everybody was walking around like this. You know, people were so stressed out. You could physically see the stress in people's bodies and everybody was wearing masks and their eyes were down and people just looked dazed and Tommy would not want, he would not want to leave the house. We always talk about um, like our inner voice and that's like our danger sensor. And he would tell me, he would say, I have an icky feeling and my inner voice is telling me it's not safe and I think we should stay home. So he would get anxiety when we left the house, even just to go for a drive. And that was only a few months, you know, that was August, July. So four months into the pandemic, maybe. And my little guy um, would chew his knuckles so bad that they would bleed. Like these little things that, you know, cause we had all the wildfires, so we couldn't take the kids outside. The parks and beaches were closed, which is something that I actually didn't agree with because I feel like when it's a hundred degrees and you're outside, any virus, live virus was, is probably gonna die in ultraviolet light. Um, you know, so, so I just started seeing it. And when, when they started saying to me, I don't want to leave the house because it's giving me an icky feeling. 
like this is going to turn into a lifelong phobia. This is going to happen. This is going to really change who they become as adults. And that's when I was just like, we got to get them out of here. We have to get these kids out of this environment. And I'm, you know, we own our house. We can pay our bills. I wasn't worried about putting food on the table. I was able to like get crab legs from Costco for special to try and make the weekends fun and like do special things for my kids and have order Lego sets so they could put them together, even though, you know, and we have all these tools and resources to, to help our kids get through this, but you're a single working parent and you don't have the money to buy your kid a $30 Lego set. So they're happy for a day. Like, you know, so I cannot imagine the repercussions of this pandemic Yeah. in 10 years and 15 years. I think a lot of the kids are going to be germaphobes. I think they're going to have phobias about germs and touching. And I think, unfortunately, this generation will probably grow up not hugging, not being so touchy feeling, being like kind of like the Iraq war vets, right? That came back with this sort of trauma. And I think that's going to manifest in a lot of issues for this generation as they get older. I think the teens are really fucked right now. You know, when you look back to your high school years and how important that was and those friendships and those relationships and going to your friend's house and watching movies and playing spin the bottle and stealing your parents' moonshine or maybe, or your, your friend's parents' moonshine, or maybe that was just in the Yukon. No, that that was down here too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, the, the the first crime I ever committed was at like 17 years old stealing a 12 pack of beer so me and my wrestling buddies could go drink a 12 pack of beer. I didn't even oh. like beer, but we were just like, oh man, yeah. we've been losing weight for three weeks. We should have something really caloric, and we're like, yeah, let's go steal some beer. Um, let's do and, it. And it was it was insane. And as we were getting away in the car, I probably should have flipped the car and ended up with a back injury like you. But um, at the end of the day, it's like these are kind of the weird things that like are you grow socially yeah and you it's do like things with people the bonding thing with your friends and like lying in my friend's house and listening to music and talking about life and what we're gonna do i feel really really awful for these poor teens right now that are stuck at home on an ipad kind of half in half out and you know we're really lucky here but but even here i don't think the teens are in school full time i think it's like half time i actually think that they should have in in the States, they should have canceled the year of school. It should have just been a done year. And it should have been at whatever you need to do as a parent to get through the day. Do not worry about your kid's education right now. Have them read, have them write, have them draw pictures. That's it. No school. And instead, we're going to use all that money for mental health. And that's it. And I think that would have been a much better solution. LUSD should have been like, screw it no school. We're not sending books out to all these kids. We're not doing this like freaking zoom, blah, blah, blah. We're going to instead hire a shit ton of mental health support for these kids and have them be able to talk to somebody and send them, send them art books and and paints and stuff so they can draw and books to read, but we're not going to do a seven hour a day zoom session with these kids. You know, I just, yeah, I feel really sad when I think about this generation, 2020 is going to be in history books you know it's going to be a huge giant history lesson and those poor kids that have to learn about what happened in 2020 so many so much shit went down right yeah you know and the riots and this and and the government and the election and donald trump and the pandemic and (sighs) 
one for the books. One for the books. So uh, leave us on a positive note here. What are you looking forward to in in 2021? I mean, obviously, like you said, you know, thank God you've worked your ass off. And, and I, don't, I don't want to just step over that, that somehow you're really lucky and you got to move with your family, you know, to a foreign country because at the end, well, not a foreign country, you live there. At the end of the day, you did work your ass off to put yourself in a situation where you could do that. But, you know, looking forward at 2021, I know you're going to come back down here to LA and, and continue to run the, the team and the company down here. And then obviously things are going well for you in Canada. Like, what do you, what are you looking forward to? What are some positive notes we can, we can leave the audience on if they've gotten this far? Okay. Well, this is totally coming full circle, but I think the lack of socialization and live music. So the, the music industry was really suffering. And I think there's going to be a huge resurgence of people that want to see bands and live music and socialize. So that's something I'm super excited about because I know that there's going to be such a demand when things open back up, when everybody's vaccinated, when hopefully this virus is in the rearview mirror and even kids are vaccinated. I just am like, let's get the concerts, like all of the live rock shows and music and they'll be packed. The gigs will be packed. The night riders and the cavalry will have a reunion tour. We'll sell out every show. No, I'm just really excited to see this massive resurgence of live music. And I also think with adversity and struggle comes creativity. So the best music is always from the darkest times of two people's darkest times. So I'm very excited for the live music scene to start thriving again and people to actually be going out to shows. And I think there's going to be such a thirst for it that it's going to be epic. So I'm really excited for that. That's awesome. I'm pumped up about that. And honestly, I could talk to you for hours. So the next time Canada does something really smart or really stupid, we got to have you back on and we'll have another two hour conversation about what's going on in Canada and comparatively speaking. (laughs) And, and hopefully by the next time we talk, there will be some like, I'm, I'm about ready to fly to New Zealand or London because they've announced some concerts later this year for Guns N' Roses, Pearl Jam, U2, some bands I want to see. So I, I, I will fly internationally to see some music because I'm like you. I, I, I love music. I love going to shows. Uh, so um, at some point, who knows, maybe I'll be flying to the Yukon to see D. Snyder at a dive bar. That'd be rad. Well, we'll have to go to a show together next time I'm, I'm in L.A. That, that would be a lot of fun. All right, cool. Well, Yukon uh, Sarah, hey, what's the name of your podcast? So people that are interested in, you know, Los Angeles real estate or just want to, you know, fell in love with you over this last two hours, how can people keep in touch with you? Yeah, so our, my podcast is called The LA Real Estate Podcast, and it's all about buying and selling. Mostly, it's really a lot of information for first-time homebuyers. We go through everything, start to finish inspections, title insurance, escrow, everything. So the LA Real Estate Podcast, you can find it on every podcast hosting thing imaginable. So it's really easy to find. But yeah, I'd love for people to listen. And thanks for having me on your show. Perfect. We'll, uh, we'll link to all that in the show notes and whatnot. And then, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. We'll see where we're at in another couple months.